Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, December 4th, 2015. So I have been told this is our second and final study session on Tanahasi Coates between the world and me. Uh, we should be picking up on chapter two. Uh, we normally have a little uh, opening soundbite uh, we get to hear from uh, Mr. Coates or someone else. I'd actually, I was going to include a sound clip of Minister Malcolm X since he's uh, prominently uh, mentioned, referenced uh, in the text. But uh, this book, it's short enough that we can finish it today. So I'm kicking our normal intro out so that we can go ahead and get started. And we should be able to conclude this book today. Uh, if listeners would like to vote on the next book that we'll be starting next week, uh, just email your suggestions until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. And we'll be starting a new book next week. But for now, wrapping up Tanahasi Coates between the world and me. Again, we are starting uh, the very beginning of chapter two context of white supremacy audio segment number one. Two. Our world is full of sound. Our world is more lovely than anyone's, though we suffer and kill each other and sometimes fail to walk the air. We are beautiful people with African imaginations, full of masks and dances and swelling chants with African eyes and noses and arms, though we sprawl in gray chains in a place full of winters when what we want is sun. A Mary Baraka. Shortly before you were born, I was pulled over by the PG County police, the same police that all the D.C. poets had warned me of. 
They approached on both sides of the car, shining their flashing lights through the windows. They took my identification and returned to the squad car. I sat there in terror. By then I had added to the warnings of my teachers what I'd learned about PG County through reporting and reading the papers. And so I knew that the PG County police had killed Elmer Clay Newton, then claimed he'd rammed his own head into the wall of a jail cell. And I knew that they'd shot Gary Hopkins and said he'd gone for an officer's gun. And I knew they had beaten Freddie McCollum half-blind and blamed it all on a collapsing floor. And I had read reports of these officers choking mechanics, shooting construction workers, slamming suspects through the glass doors of shopping malls. And I knew that they did this with great regularity, as though moved by some unseen cosmic clock. I knew that they shot at moving cars, shot at the unarmed, shot through the backs of men and claimed it had been they who'd been under fire. These shooters were investigated, exonerated, and promptly returned to the streets, where, so emboldened, they shot again. At that point in American history, no police department fired its guns more than that of Prince George's County. The FBI opened multiple investigations, sometimes in the same week. The police chief was rewarded with a raise. I replayed all of this sitting there in my car, in their clutches. Better to have been shot in Baltimore, where there was the justice of the streets and someone might call the killer to account. But these officers had my body, could do with their body whatever they pleased, and should I live to explain what they had done with it, this complaint would mean nothing. The officer returned. He handed back my license. He gave no explanation for the stop. Then that September, I picked up the Washington Post and saw that the PG County police had killed again. I could not help but think that this could have been me, and holding you, a month old by then, I knew that such loss would not be mine alone. I skimmed the headline. Their atrocities seemed so common back then. The story spread into a second day, and reading slightly closer, I saw it was a Howard student who had been killed. I thought perhaps I knew him, but I paid it no further mind. Then on the third day, a photo appeared with the story, and I glimpsed at and then focused on the portrait, and I saw him there. He was dressed in his formal clothes, as though it were his senior prom, and frozen in the amber of his youth. His face was lean, brown, and beautiful, and across that face I saw the open, easy smile of Prince Carmen Jones. I cannot remember what happened next. I think I stumbled back. I think I told your mother what I'd read. I think I called the girl with the long dreads and asked her if it could be true. I think she screamed. What I remember for sure is what I felt. Rage and the old gravity of West Baltimore. The gravity that condemned me to the schools, the streets, the void. Prince Jones had made it through, and still they had taken him. And even though I already knew that I would never believe any account that justified this taking, I sat down to read the story. There were very few details. He had been shot by a PG County officer, not in PG County, not even in D.C., but somewhere in northern Virginia. Prince had been driving to see his fiancée. He was killed yards from her home. The only witness to the killing of Prince Jones was the killer himself. The officer claimed that Prince had tried to run him over with his Jeep, and I knew that the prosecutors would believe him. Days later, your mother and I packed you into the car, drove down to Washington, left you with your Aunt Camilla, and went to the service for Prince at Rankin Chapel on Howard's campus, where I'd once sat amazed at the parade of activists and intellectuals, Joseph Lowry, 
Cornell West, Calvin Butts, who preached at that pulpit. I must have seen a great number of old friends there, though I cannot recall precisely who. What I remember is all the people who spoke of Prince's religious zeal, his abiding belief that Jesus was with him. I remember watching the president of the university stand and weep. I remember Dr. Mabel Jones, Prince's mother, speaking of her son's death as a call to move from her comfortable suburban life into activism. I heard several people ask for forgiveness for the officer who shot Prince Jones down. I only vaguely recall my impressions of all this. But I know that I have always felt great distance from the grieving rituals of my people, and I must have felt it powerfully then. The need to forgive the officer would not have moved me, because, even then, in some inchoate form, I knew that Prince was not killed by a single officer, so much as he was murdered by his country and all the fears that have marked it from birth. At this moment, the phrase police reform has come into vogue, and the actions of our publicly appointed guardians have attracted attention, presidential and pedestrian. You may have heard the talk of diversity, sensitivity training, and body cameras. These are all fine and applicable, but they understate the task and allow the citizens of this country to pretend that there is real distance between their own attitudes and those of the ones appointed to protect them. The truth is that the police reflect America in all of its will and fear, and whatever we might make of this country's criminal justice policy, it cannot be said that it was imposed by a repressive minority. The abuses that have followed from these policies, the sprawling carceral state, the random detention of black people, the torture of suspects, are the product of democratic will. And so to challenge the police is to challenge the American people, who send them into the ghettos armed with the same self-generated fears that compelled the people, who think they are white, to flee the cities and into the dream. The problem with the police is not that they are fascist pigs, but that our country is ruled by majoritarian pigs. I knew some of this even then, sitting in Rankin Chapel, even if I could not yet express it. So forgiving the killer of Prince Jones would have seemed irrelevant to me. The killer was the direct expression of all his country's beliefs, and raised conscious in rejection of a Christian God, I could see no higher purpose in Prince's death. I believed, and still do, that our bodies are ourselves, that my soul is the voltage conducted through neurons and nerves, and that my spirit is my flesh. Prince Jones was a one of one, and they had destroyed his body, scorched his shoulders and arms, ripped open his back, mangled lung, kidney, and liver. I sat there feeling myself a heretic, believing only in this one-shot life and the body. For the crime of destroying the body of Prince Jones, I did not believe in forgiveness. When the assembled mourners bowed their heads in prayer, I was divided from them because I believed that the void would not answer back. Weeks wore on. Nauseating details slowly dribbled out. The officer was a known liar. A year earlier, he had arrested a man on false evidence. Prosecutors had been forced to drop every case in which the officer was involved. The officer was demoted, restored, then put out on the street to continue his work. Now, through additional reports, a narrative began to take shape. The officer had been dressed like an undercover drug dealer. He'd been sent out to track a man whose build was five foot four and 250 pounds. We know from the coroner that Prince's body was six foot three and 211 pounds. We know that the other man was apprehended later. The charges against him were dropped. None of this mattered. 
We know that his superiors sent this officer to follow Prince from Maryland through Washington, D.C. and into Virginia, where the officer shot Prince several times. We know that the officer confronted Prince with his gun drawn and no badge. We know that the officer claims he shot because Prince tried to run him over with his Jeep. We know that the authorities charged with investigating this shooting did very little to investigate the officer and did everything in their powers to investigate Prince Jones. This investigation produced no information that would explain why Prince Jones would suddenly shift his ambitions from college to cop killing. This officer, given maximum power, bore minimum responsibility. He was charged with nothing. He was punished by no one. He was returned to his work. There were times when I imagined myself, like Prince, tracked through many jurisdictions by a man in a criminal's costume. And I was horrified because I knew what I would have done with such a man confronting me, gun drawn, mere feet away from my own family's home. Take care of my baby, your grandmother had said, which was to say, take care of your new family. But I now knew the limits of my caring, the reach of my powers, etched by an enemy as old as Virginia. I thought of all the beautiful black people I'd seen at the Mecca, all their variation, all their hair, all their language, all their stories and geography, all their stunning humanity, and none of it could save them from the mark of plunder and the gravity of our particular world. And it occurred to me then that you would not escape, that there were awful men who laid plans for you, and I could not stop them. Prince Jones was the superlative of all my fears, and if he, good Christian, scion of a striving class, patron saint of the twice as good, could be forever bound, who then could not? And the plunder was not just of Prince alone. Think of all the love poured into him. Think of the tuitions for Montessori and music lessons. Think of the gasoline expended, the treads worn, carting him to football games, basketball tournaments, and Little League. Think of the time spent regulating sleepovers. Think of the surprise birthday parties, the daycare, and the reference checks on babysitters. Think of world book and child craft. Think of checks written for family photos. Think of credit cards charged for vacations. Think of soccer balls, science kits, chemistry sets, racetracks, and model trains. Think of all the embraces, all the private jokes, customs, greetings, names, dreams, all the shared knowledge and capacity of a black family injected into that vessel of flesh and bone. And think of how that vessel was taken, shattered on the concrete, and all its holy contents, all that had gone into him, sent flowing back to the earth. Think of your mother who had no father, and your grandmother who was abandoned by her father, and your grandfather who was left behind by his father. And think of how Prince's daughter was now drafted into those solemn ranks and deprived of her birthright. That vessel, which was her father, which brimmed with 25 years of love and was the investment of her grandparents and was to be her legacy. Now at night I held you in a great fear, wide as all our American generations took me. Now I personally understood my father and the old mantra, either I can beat him or the police. I understood it all. The cable wires, the extension cords, the ritual switch. Black people love their children with a kind of obsession. You are all we have, and you come to us endangered. I think we would like to kill you ourselves before seeing you killed by the streets that America made. That is a philosophy of the disembodied, of a people who control nothing, who can protect nothing, who are made to fear not just the criminals among them, but the police who lord over them with all the moral authority of a protection racket. 
It was only after you that I understood this love, that I understood the grip of my mother's hand. She knew that the galaxy itself could kill me, that all of me could be shattered, and all of her legacy spilled upon the curb like bum wine. And no one would be brought to account for this destruction, because my death would not be the fault of any human, but the fault of some unfortunate but immutable fact of race imposed upon an innocent country by the inscrutable judgment of invisible gods. The earthquake cannot be subpoenaed. The typhoon will not bend under indictment. They sent the killer of Prince Jones back to his work because he was not a killer at all. He was a force of nature, the helpless agent of our world's physical laws. This entire episode took me from fear to a rage that burned in me then, animates me now, and will likely leave me on fire for the rest of my days. I still had my journalism. My response was, in this moment, to write. I was lucky I had even that. Most of us are forced to drink our travesties straight and smile about it. I wrote about the history of the Prince George's County Police. Nothing had ever felt so essential to me. Here is what I knew at the outset. The officer who killed Prince Jones was black. The politicians who empowered this officer to kill were black. Many of the black politicians, many of them twice as good, seemed unconcerned. How could this be? It was like I was back at Moreland again, called by great mysteries. But by then, I didn't need any call slips. The Internet had bloomed into an instrument of research. That must strike you as novel. For all your life, whenever you've had a question, you have been able to type that question out on a keyboard, watch it appear in a rectangular space bordered by a corporate logo, and within seconds, revel in the flood of potential answers. But I still remember when typewriters were useful, the dawn of the Commodore 64, and days when a song you loved would have its moment on the radio and then disappear into the nothing. I must have gone five years without hearing the Mary Jane girls sing all night long. For a young man like me, the invention of the Internet was the invention of space travel. My curiosity in the case of Prince Jones opened a world of newspaper clippings, histories, and sociologies. I called politicians and questioned them. I was told that the citizens were more likely to ask for police support than to complain about brutality. I was told that the black citizens of PG County were comfortable and had a certain impatience with crime. I had seen these theories before, back when I was researching in Moreland, leafing through the various fights within and without the black community. I knew that these were theories, even in the mouths of black people, that justified the jails springing up around me that argued for ghettos and projects, that viewed the destruction of the black body as incidental to the preservation of order. According to this theory, safety was a higher value than justice, perhaps the highest value. I understood. What I would not have given back in Baltimore for a line of officers, agents of my country and my community, patrolling my route to school. There were no such officers. And whenever I saw the police, it meant that something had already gone wrong. All along, I knew that there were some, those who lived in the dream, for whom the conversation was different. Their safety was in schools, portfolios, and skyscrapers. Ours was in men with guns who could only view us with the same contempt as the society that sent them. And the lack of safety cannot help but constrain your sense of the galaxy. It never occurred to me, for instance, that I could or should even want to live in New York. I did love Baltimore. I loved Charlie Rudos and the sidewalk sales at Mundaman. I loved sitting out on the porch with your Uncle Damani waiting for Frank Ski to play Fresh as the Word. 
I always thought I was destined to go back home after college, but not simply because I loved home, but because I could not imagine much else for myself. And that stunted imagination is something I owe to my chains. And yet some of us really do see more. I met many of them at the Mecca, like your Uncle Ben, who was raised in New York, which forced him to understand himself as an African-American, navigating among Haitians, Jamaicans, Hasidic Jews, and Italians. And there were others like him, others who, having gotten a boost from a teacher, an aunt, an older brother, had peered over the wall as children and as adults become set on seeing the full view. These black people felt, as did I, that their bodies could be snatched back at a whim. But this set in them a different kind of fear that propelled them out into the cosmos. They spent semesters abroad. I never knew what they did or why. But perhaps I always sensed I was going down too easy. Perhaps that explains every girl I've ever loved because every girl I've ever loved was a bridge to somewhere else. Your mother, who knew so much more of the world than me, fell in love with New York through culture, through crossing Delancey, breakfast at Tiffany's, working girl, Nas, and Wu-Tang. Your mother secured a job, and I followed, stowed away almost, because no one in New York at that time was paying for me to write much of anything. What little I did make, reviewing an album or a book, covered approximately two electric bills every year. We arrived two months before September 11, 2001. I suppose everyone who was in New York that day has a story. Here is mine. That evening, I stood on the roof of an apartment building with your mother, your aunt Shauna, and her boyfriend Jamal. So we were there on the roof talking and taking in the sight. Great plumes of smoke covered Manhattan Island. Everyone knew someone who knew someone who was missing. But looking out upon the ruins of America, my heart was cold. I had disasters all my own. The officer who killed Prince Jones, like all the officers who regarded us so warily, was the sword of the American citizenry. I would never consider any American citizen pure. I was out of sync with the city. I kept thinking about how Southern Manhattan had always been ground zero for us. They auctioned our bodies down there, in the same devastated and rightly named financial district. And there was once a burial ground for the auction there. They built a department store over part of it, and then tried to erect a government building over another part. Only a community of right-thinking black people stopped them. I had not formed any of this into a coherent theory, but I did know that bin Laden was not the first man to bring terror to that section of the city. I never forgot that. Neither should you. In the days after, I watched the ridiculous pageantry of flags, the machismo of firemen, the overwrought slogans, damn it all, Prince Jones was dead, and hell upon those who tell us to be twice as good and shoot us no matter. Hell for ancestral fear that put black parents under terror, and hell upon those who shatter the holy vessel. I could see no difference between the officer who killed Prince Jones and the police who died or the firefighters who died. They were not human to me, black, white, or whatever. They were the menaces of nature. They were the fire, the comet, the storm, which could, with no justification, shatter my body. I saw Prince Jones one last time alive and whole. He was standing in front of me. We were in a museum. I felt in that moment that his death had just been an awful dream. No, a premonition. But I had a chance. I would warn him. I walked over, gave him a pound, and felt that heat of the spectrum, the warmth of the Mecca. I wanted to tell him something. I wanted to say, B-52. 
Beware the plunderer. But when I opened my mouth, he just shook his head and walked away. We lived in a basement apartment in Brooklyn, which I doubt you remember, down the street from Uncle Ben and his wife, your Aunt Janae. These were not great times. I remember borrowing $200 from Ben and it feeling like a million. I remember your grandfather coming to New York, taking me out for Ethiopian, after which I walked him to the West 4th Street subway station. We said our goodbyes and walked away. He called me back. He had forgotten something. He handed me a check for $120. I tell you this because you must understand, no matter the point of our talk, that I didn't always have things, but I had people. I always had people. I had a mother and father who I would match against any other. I had a brother who looked out for me all through college. I had the Mecca that directed me. I had friends who would leap in front of a bus for me. You need to know that I was loved, that whatever my lack of religious feeling, I have always loved my people, and that broad love is directly related to the specific love I feel for you. I remember sitting out on Ben's stoop on Friday nights, drinking Jack Daniels, debating the mayor's race or the rush to war. My weeks felt aimless. I pitched to various magazines with no success. Your Aunt Shauna lent me another $200. I burned it all on a scam bartending school. I delivered food for a small deli in Park Slope. In New York, everyone wanted to know your occupation. I told people that I was trying to be a writer. Some days I would take the train into Manhattan. There was so much money everywhere, money flowing out of bistros and cafes, money pushing the people at incredible speeds up the wide avenues, money drawing intergalactic traffic through Times Square, money in the limestones and brownstones, money out on West Broadway where white people spilled out of wine bars with sloshing glasses and without police. I would see these people at the club, drunken, laughing, challenging breakdancers to battles. They would be destroyed and humiliated in these battles. But afterwards, they would give dap, laugh, order more beers. They were utterly fearless. I did not understand it until I looked out on the street. That was where I saw white parents pushing double-wide strollers down gentrifying Harlem boulevards in T-shirts and jogging shorts. Or I saw them lost in conversation with each other, mother and father, while their sons commanded entire sidewalks with their tricycles. The galaxy belonged to them. And as terror was communicated to our children, I saw mastery communicated to theirs. And so when I remember pushing you in your stroller to other parts of the city, the West Village, for instance, almost instinctively believing that you should see more, I remember feeling ill at ease, like I had borrowed someone else's heirloom like I was traveling under an assumed name. All this time you were growing into words and feelings, my beautiful brown boy, who would soon come into the knowledge, who would soon comprehend the edicts of his galaxy and all the extinction-level events that regarded you with a singular and discriminating interest. You would be a man one day, and I could not save you from the unbridgeable distance between you and your future peers and colleagues who might try to convince you that everything I know all the things I'm sharing with you here are an illusion or a fact of a distant past that need not be discussed. And I could not save you from the police, from their flashlights, their hands, their nightsticks, their guns. Prince Jones, murdered by the men who should have been his security guards, is always with me, and I knew that soon he would be with you. In those days I would come out of the house, turn onto Flatbush Avenue, and my face would tighten like a Mexican wrestler's mask. 
My eyes would dart from corner to corner, my arms loose, limber, and ready. This need to be always on guard was an unmeasured expenditure of energy, the slow siphoning of the essence. It contributed to the fast breakdown of our bodies. So I feared not just the violence of this world, but the rules designed to protect you from it, the rules that would have you contort your body to address the block and contort again to be taken seriously by colleagues and contort again so as not to give the police a reason. All my life I heard people tell their black boys and black girls to be twice as good, which is to say, accept half as much. These words would be spoken with a veneer of religious nobility, as though they evidenced some unspoken quality, some undetected courage, when in fact all they evidenced was the gun to our head and the hand in our pocket. This is how we lose our softness. This is how they steal our right to smile. No one told those little white children with their tricycles to be twice as good. I imagined their parents telling them to take twice as much. It seemed to me that our own rules redoubled plunder. It struck me that perhaps the defining feature of being drafted into the black race was the inescapable robbery of time, because the moments we spent readying the mask or readying ourselves to accept half as much could not be recovered. The robbery of time is not measured in lifespans, but in moments. It is the last bottle of wine that you have just uncorked, but do not have time to drink. It is the kiss that you do not have time to share before she walks out of your life. It is the raft of second chances for them and 23-hour days for us. One afternoon, your mother and I took you to visit a preschool. Our host took us down to a large gym filled with a bubbling ethnic stew of New York children. The children were running, jumping, and tumbling. You took one look at them, tore away from us, and ran right into the scrum. You have never been afraid of people, of rejection, and I have always admired you for this and always been afraid for you because of this. I watched you leap and laugh with these children you barely knew, and the wall rose in me, and I felt I should grab you by the arm, pull you back, and say, We don't know these folks. Be cool. I did not do this. I was growing, and if I could not name my anguish precisely, I still knew that there was nothing noble in it. But now I understand the gravity of what I was proposing, that a four-year-old child be watchful, prudent, and shrewd, that I curtail your happiness, that you submit to a loss of time. And now when I measure this fear against the boldness that the masters of the galaxy imparted to their own children, I am ashamed. New York was another spectrum unto itself, and the great diversity I'd seen at Howard solely among black people now spread across a metropolis. Something different awaited around every corner. Here there were African drummers assembling in Union Square. Here there were dead office towers brought to life at night by restaurants buried within that served small kegs of beer and Korean fried chicken. Here there were black girls with white boys and black boys with Chinese-American girls and Chinese-American girls with Dominican boys and Dominican boys with Jamaican boys and every other imaginable combination. I would walk through the West Village, marveling at restaurants the size of living rooms, and I could see that the very smallness of these restaurants awarded the patrons a kind of erudite cool, as though they were laughing at a joke and it would take the rest of the world a decade to catch on. Summer was unreal. Whole swaths of the city became fashion shows, and the avenues were nothing but runways for the youth. 
There was a heat unlike anything I'd ever felt, a heat from the great buildings compounded by the millions of people jamming themselves into subway cars, into bars, into those same tiny eateries and cafes. I had never seen so much life, and I had never imagined that such life could exist in so much variety. It was everyone's particular mecca, packed into one singular city. But when I got off the train and came back to my hood, to my Flatbush Avenue, or my Harlem, the fear still held. It was the same boys with the same bop, the same ice grill, and the same code I'd known all my life. If there was one difference in New York, it was that we had more high yellow cousins here in the Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, but their rituals were so similar, the way they walked and gave dap, it was all familiar to me. And so I found myself on any given day traveling through several New Yorks at once, dynamic, brutal, moneyed, sometimes all of those at once. Perhaps you remember that time we went to see Howl's Moving Castle on the Upper West Side. You were almost five years old. The theater was crowded, and when we came out, we rode a set of escalators down to the ground floor. As we came off, you were moving at the dawdling speed of a small child. A white woman pushed you and said, Come on! Many things now happened at once. There was the reaction of any parent when a stranger lays a hand on the body of his or her child. And there was my own insecurity in my ability to protect your black body. And more, there was my sense that this woman was pulling rank. I knew, for instance, that she would not have pushed the black child out on my part of Flatbush because she would be afraid there and would sense, if not know, that there would be a penalty for such an action. But I was not out on my part of Flatbush and I was not in West Baltimore, and I was far from the Mecca. I forgot all of that. I was only aware that someone had invoked their right over the body of my son. I turned and spoke to this woman, and my words were hot with all of the moment and all of my history. She shrunk back, shocked. A white man standing nearby spoke up in her defense. I experienced this as his attempt to rescue the damsel from the beast. He had made no such attempt on behalf of my son and he was now supported by other white people in the assembling crowd. The man came closer. He grew louder. I pushed him away. He said, I could have you arrested. I did not care. I told him this, and the desire to do much more was hot in my throat. This desire was only controllable because I remembered someone standing off to the side there, bearing witness to more fury than he had ever seen from me. You. I came home shook. It was a mix of shame for having gone back to the law of the streets mixed with rage. I could have you arrested, which is to say, I could take your body. I have told this story many times, not out of bravado, but out of a need for absolution. I have never been a violent person. Even when I was young and adopted the rules of the street, anyone who knew me knew it was a bad fit. I've never felt the pride that is supposed to come with righteous self-defense and justified violence. Whenever it was me on top of someone, whatever my rage in the moment, afterward, I always felt sick at having been lowered to the crudest form of communication. Malcolm made sense to me not out of love of violence, but because nothing in my life prepared me to understand tear gas as deliverance as those Black History Month martyrs of the Civil Rights Movement did. But more than any shame I feel about my own actual violence, my greatest regret was that in seeking to defend you, I was in fact endangering you. I could have you arrested, he said, which is to say, 
one of your son's earliest memories will be watching the men who sodomized Abner Luima and choked Anthony Baez cuff, club, tase, and break you. I had forgotten the rules, an era as dangerous on the Upper West Side of Manhattan as on the West Side of Baltimore. One must be without error out here. Walk in single file, work quietly, pack an extra number two pencil, make no mistakes. But you are human, and you will make mistakes. You will misjudge, you will yell, you will drink too much, you will hang out with people you shouldn't. Not all of us can always be Jackie Robinson. Not even Jackie Robinson was always Jackie Robinson. But the price of error is higher for you than it is for your countrymen, and so that America might justify itself, the story of a black body's destruction must always begin with his or her error, real or imagined, with Eric Garner's anger, with Trayvon Martin's mythical words, you are going to die tonight, with Sean Bell's mistake of running with the wrong crowd, with me standing too close to the small-eyed boy pulling out. A society almost necessarily begins every success story with the chapter that most advantages itself, and in America, these precipitating chapters are almost always rendered as a singular action of exceptional individuals. It only takes one person to make a change, you are often told. This is also myth. Perhaps one person can make a change, but not the kind of change that would raise your body to equality with your countrymen. The fact of history is that black people have not, Probably no people have ever liberated themselves strictly through their own efforts. In every great change in the lives of African Americans, we see the hand of events that were beyond our individual control, events that were not unalloyed goods. You cannot disconnect our emancipation in the northern colonies from the blood spilled in the Revolutionary War any more than you can disconnect our emancipation from slavery in the South from the charnel houses of the Civil War any more than you can disconnect our emancipation from Jim Crow from the genocides of the Second World War. History is not solely in our hands, and still you are called to struggle, not because it assures you victory, but because it assures you an honorable and sane life. I am ashamed of how I acted that day, ashamed of endangering your body. But I am not ashamed because I am a bad father, a bad individual, or ill-mannered. I am ashamed that I made an error, knowing that our errors always cost us more. This is the import of the history all around us, though very few people like to think about it. Had I informed this woman that when she pushed my son, she was acting according to a tradition that held black bodies as lesser, her response would likely have been, I am not a racist, or maybe not. But my experience in this world has been that the people who believe themselves to be white are obsessed with the politics of personal exoneration, and the word racist to them conjures, if not a tobacco-spitting oaf, then something just as fantastic, an orc, troll, or gorgon. I am not a racist, an entertainer once insisted after being filmed repeatedly yelling at a heckler, he's a nigger, he's a nigger. Considering segregationist Senator Strom Thurmond, Richard Nixon concluded, Strom is no racist. There are no racists in America, or at least none that the people who need to be white know personally. In the era of mass lynching, it was so difficult to find who specifically served as executioner that such deaths were often reported by the press as having happened at the hands of persons unknown. In 1957, the white residents of Levittown, Pennsylvania, argued for their right to keep their town segregated. As moral, religious, and law-abiding citizens, the group wrote, 
We feel that we are unprejudiced and undiscriminating in our wish to keep our community a closed community. This was the attempt to commit a shameful act while escaping all sanction, and I raise it to show you that there was no golden era when evildoers did their business and loudly proclaimed it as such. We would prefer to say that such people cannot exist, that there aren't any right Solzhenitsyn. To do evil, a human being must first of all believe that what he's doing is good, or else that it's a well-considered act in conformity with natural law. This is the foundation of the dream. Its adherents must not just believe in it, but believe that it is just, believe that their possession of the dream is the natural result of grit, honor, and good works. There is some passing acknowledgment of the bad old days, which, by the way, were not so bad as to have any ongoing effects on our present. The metal that it takes to look away from the horror of our prison system, from police forces transformed into armies, from the long war against the black body is not forged overnight. This is the practiced habit of jabbing out one's eyes and forgetting the work of one's hands. To acknowledge these horrors means turning away from the brightly rendered version of your country as it has always declared itself and turning towards something murkier and unknown. It is still too difficult for most Americans to do this, but that is your work. It must be, if only to preserve the sanctity of your mind. The entire narrative of this country argues against the truth of who you are. I think of that summer that you may well remember when I loaded you and your cousin Christopher into the backseat of a rented car and pushed out to see what remained of Petersburg, Shirley Plantation, and the wilderness. I was obsessed with the Civil War because 600,000 people had died in it, and yet it had been glossed over in my education and in popular culture representations of the war and its reasons seemed obscured. And yet I knew that in 1859 we were enslaved and in 1865 we were not. And what happened to us in those years struck me as having some amount of import. But whenever I visited any of the battlefields, I felt like I was greeted as if I were a nosy accountant conducting an audit and someone was trying to hide the books. I don't know if you remember how the film we saw at the Petersburg battlefield ended as though the fall of the Confederacy were the onset of a tragedy, not Jubilee. I doubt you remember the man on our tour dressed in the gray wool of the Confederacy or how every visitor seemed most interested in flanking maneuvers, hardtack, smoothbore rifles, grape shot, and ironclads, but virtually no one was interested in what all of this engineering, invention, and design had been marshaled to achieve. You were only ten years old. But even then I knew that I must trouble you, and this meant taking you into rooms where people would insult your intelligence, where thieves would try to enlist you in your own robbery and disguise their burning and looting as Christian charity. But robbery is what this is, what it always was. At the onset of the Civil War, our stolen bodies were worth $4 billion, more than all of the American industry, all of the American railroads, workshops, and factories combined. And the prime product rendered by our stolen bodies, cotton, was America's primary export. The richest men in America lived in the Mississippi River Valley, and they made their riches off our stolen bodies. Our bodies were held in bondage by the early presidents. Our bodies were traded from the White House by James K. Polk. Our bodies built the Capitol and the National Mall. The first shot of the Civil War was fired in South Carolina, where our bodies constituted the majority of human bodies in the state. Here is the motive for the Great War. It's not a secret but we can do better and find the bandit confessing his crime. 
Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, declared Mississippi as it left the Union, the greatest material interest of the world. Do you remember standing with me and your mother during one of our visits to Gettysburg outside the home of Abraham Bryan? We were with a young man who'd educated himself on the history of black people in Gettysburg. He explained that Bryan Farm was the far end of the line that was charged by George Pickett on the final day of Gettysburg. He told us that Bryan was a black man, that Gettysburg was home to a free black community, that Bryan and his family fled their home for fear of losing their bodies to the advancing army of enslavement, led by the honored and holy Confederate general, Robert E. Lee, whose army was then stealing black people from themselves and selling them south. George Pickett and his troops were repulsed by the Union Army. Standing there a century and a half later, I thought of one of Faulkner's characters famously recalling how this failure tantalized the minds of all Southern boys. It's all in the balance. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't even begun. All of Faulkner's Southern boys were white. But I, standing on the farm of a black man who fled with his family to stay free of the South, saw Pickett's soldiers charging through history in wild pursuit of their strange birthright, the right to beat, rape, rob, and pillage the black body. That is all of what was in the balance, the nostalgic moment's corrupt and unspeakable core. But American Reunion was built on a comfortable narrative that made enslavement into benevolence, white nights of body snatchers, and the mass slaughter of the war into a kind of sport in which one could conclude that both sides conducted their affairs with courage, honor, and alarm. This lie of the Civil War is the lie of innocence, is the dream. Historians conjured the dream. Hollywood fortified the dream. The dream was gilded by novels and adventure stories. John Carter flees the broken Confederacy for Mars. We are not supposed to ask what precisely he was running from. I, like every kid I knew, loved the Dukes of Hazard. But I would have done well to think more about why two outlaws driving a car named the General Lee must necessarily be portrayed as just some good old boys, never meaning no harm, a mantra for the dreamers if there ever was one. But what one means is neither important nor relevant. It is not necessary that you believe that the officer who choked Eric Garner set out that day to destroy a body. All you need to understand is that the officer carries with him the power of the American state and the weight of an American legacy, and they necessitate that of the bodies destroyed every year, some wild and disproportionate number of them will be black. Here is what I would like you to know. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. Enslavement was not merely the antiseptic borrowing of labor. It is not so easy to get a human being to commit their body against its own elemental interests. And so enslavement must be casual wrath and random manglings, the gashing of heads and brains blown out over the river as the body seeks to escape. It must be rape so regular as to be industrial. There is no uplifting way to say this. I have no praise anthems nor old Negro spirituals. The spirit and soul are the body and brain which are destructible, that is precisely why they are so precious. And the soul did not escape. The spirit did not steal away on gospel wings. The soul was the body that fed the tobacco, and the spirit was the blood that watered the cotton. And these created the first fruits of the American garden. And the fruits were secured through the bashing of children with stove wood, through hot iron peeling skin away, like husk from corn. 
It had to be blood. It had to be nails driven through the tongue and ears pruned away. Some disobedience, wrote a southern mistress. Much idleness, sullenness, slovenliness used the rod. It had to be the thrashing of kitchen hands for the crime of churning butter at a leisurely clip. It had to be some woman cheered with thirty lashes a Saturday last and as many more a Tuesday again. It could only be the employment of carriage whips, tongs, iron pokers, handsaws, stones, paperweights, or whatever might be handy to break the black body, the black family, the black community, the black nation. The bodies were pulverized into stock and marked with insurance. And the bodies were an aspiration, lucrative as Indian land, a veranda, a beautiful wife, or a summer home in the mountains. For the men who needed to believe themselves white, the bodies were the key to a social club, and the right to break the bodies was the mark of civilization. The two great divisions of society are not the rich and poor, but white and black, said the great South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun and all the former, the poor as well as the rich, belong to the upper class and are respected and treated as equals. And there it is, the right to break the black body as the meaning of their sacred equality. And that right has always given them meaning, has always meant that there was someone down in the valley because a mountain is not a mountain if there is nothing below. You and I, my son, are that below. That was true in 1776, it is true today. There is no them without you, and without the right to break you, they must necessarily fall from the mountain, lose their divinity, and tumble out of the dream. And then they would have to determine how to build their suburbs on something other than human bones, how to angle their jails towards something other than a human stockyard, how to erect a democracy independent of cannibalism. But because they believe themselves to be white, they would rather countenance a man choked to death on film under their laws. And they would rather subscribe to the myth of Trayvon Martin, slight teenager, hands full of candy and soft drinks, transforming into a murderous juggernaut. And they would rather see Prince Jones followed by a bad cop through three jurisdictions and shot down for acting like a human. And they would rather reach out in all their sanity and push my four-year-old son as though he were merely an obstacle in the path of their too important day. I was there, Samari. No, I was back in Baltimore, surrounded by them boys. I was on my parents' living room floor, staring out at that distant world impenetrable to me. I was in all the anger of my years. I was where Eric Garner must have been in his last moments. This stops today, he said, and was killed. I felt the cosmic injustice, even though I did not fully understand it. I had not yet been to Gettysburg. I had not yet read the Volia Glymph. All I had was the feeling, the weight. I did not yet know, and I do not fully know now. But part of what I know is that there is the burden of living among dreamers, and there is the extra burden of your country telling you the dream is just, noble, and real, and you are crazy for seeing the corruption and smelling the sulfur. For their innocence, they nullify your anger, your fear, until you are coming and going, and you find yourself inveighing against yourself. Black people are the only people who, really inveighing against your own humanity and raging against the crime in your ghetto because you were powerless before the great crime of history that brought the ghettos to be. It is truly horrible to understand yourself as the essential below of your country. 
It breaks too much of what we would like to think about ourselves, our lives, the world we move through, and the people who surround us. The struggle to understand is our only advantage over this madness. By the time I visited those battlefields, I knew that they had been retrofitted as the staging ground for a great deception, and this was my only security because they could no longer insult me by lying to me. I knew, and the most important thing I knew was that somewhere deep within them, they knew too. I like to think that knowing might have kept me from endangering you, that having understood and acknowledged the anger, I could control it. I like to think that it could have allowed me to speak the needed words to the woman and then walk away. I like to think this, but I can't promise it. The struggle is really all I have for you, because it is the only portion of this world under your control. I am sorry that I cannot make it okay. I am sorry that I cannot save you, but not that sorry. Part of me thinks that your very vulnerability brings you closer to the meaning of life, just as for others, the quest to believe oneself white divides them from it. The fact is that despite their dreams, their lives are not so inviolable. When their own vulnerability becomes real, when the police decide that tactics intended for the ghetto should enjoy wider usage, when their armed society shoots down their children, when nature sends hurricanes against their cities, they are shocked in a way that those of us who were born and bred to understand cause and effect can never be and I would not have you live like them. You have been cast into a race in which the wind is always at your face and the hounds are always at your heels. And to varying degrees, this is true of all life. The difference is that you do not have the privilege of living in ignorance of this essential fact. I am speaking to you as I always have, as the sober and serious man I have always wanted you to be, who does not apologize for his human feelings who does not make excuses for his height, his long arms, his beautiful smile. You are growing into consciousness, and my wish for you is that you feel no need to constrict yourself to make other people comfortable. None of that can change the math anyway. I never wanted you to be twice as good as them, so much as I have always wanted you to attack every day of your brief, bright life and struggle. The people who must believe they are white can never be your measuring stick. I would not have you descend into your own dream. I would have you be a conscious citizen of this terrible and beautiful world. One day I was in Chicago reporting a story about the history of segregation in the urban north and how it was engineered by government policy. I was trailing some officers of the county sheriff as they made their rounds. That day I saw a black man losing his home. I followed the sheriff's officers inside the house where a group of them were talking to the man's wife, who was also trying to tend to her two children. She had clearly not been warned that the sheriff would be coming, though something in her husband's demeanor told me that he must have known. His wife's eyes registered all at once, shock at the circumstance, anger at the officers, and anger at her husband. The officers stood in the man's living room giving him orders as to what would now happen. Outside, there were men who'd been hired to remove the family's possessions. The man was humiliated, and I imagined that he had probably for some time carried in his head, alone, all that was threatening his family, but could not bring himself to admit it to himself or his wife. So he now changed all that energy into anger directed at the officers. He cursed, he yelled, he pointed wildly. This particular sheriff's department was more progressive than most. They were concerned about mass incarceration, 
they would often bring a social worker to an eviction. But this had nothing to do with the underlying and relentless logic of the world this man inhabited, a logic built on laws, built on history, built on contempt for this man and his family and their fate. The man ran it on. When the officers turned away, he ran it more to the group of black men assembled who'd been hired to sit his family out on the street. His manner was like all the powerless black people I'd ever known, exaggerating their bodies to conceal a fundamental plunder that they could not prevent. I had spent the week exploring this city, walking through its vacant lots, watching the aimless boys sitting in the pews of the striving churches, reeling before the street murals to the dead, and I would, from time to time, sit in the humble homes of black people in that city who were entering their tenth decade of life. These people were profound. Their homes were filled with the emblems of honorable life, citizenship awards, portraits of husbands and wives passed away, several generations of children in cap and gown. And they had drawn these accolades by cleaning big houses and living in one-room Alabama shacks before moving to the city. And they had done this despite the city, which was supposed to be a respite, revealing itself to simply be a more intricate specimen of plunder. They had worked two and three jobs, put children through high school and college, and become pillars of their community. I admired them, but I knew the whole time that I was merely encountering the survivors, the ones who'd endured the banks and their stone-faced contempt, the realtors and their fake sympathy. I'm sorry, that house just sold yesterday. The realtors who steered them back toward ghetto blocks or blocks earmarked to be ghetto soon. The lenders who found this captive class and tried to strip them of everything they had. In those homes, I saw the best of us. But behind each of them, I knew that there were so many millions gone. And I knew that there were children born into these same caged neighborhoods on the west side, these ghettos, each of which was as planned as any subdivision. They are an elegant act of racism. Killing fields authored by federal policies, where we are, all again, plundered of our dignity, of our families, of our wealth, and of our lives. And there is no difference between the killing of Prince Jones and the murders attending these killing fields, because both are rooted in the assumed inhumanity of black people. A legacy of plunder, a network of laws and traditions, a heritage, a dream, murdered Prince Jones as sure as it murders black people in North Lawndale with frightening regularity. Black-on-black -black crime is jargon, violence to language, which vanishes the men who engineered the covenants, who fixed the loans, who planned the projects, who built the streets and sold red ink by the barrel. And this should not surprise us. The plunder of black life was drilled into this country in its infancy and reinforced across its history so that plunder has become an heirloom, an intelligence, a sentience, a default setting to which likely to the end of our days we must invariably return. The killing fields of Chicago, of Baltimore, of Detroit were created by the policy of dreamers, but their weight, their shame rests solely upon those who are dying in them. There is a great deception in this. To yell black-on-black -black crime is to shoot a man and then shame him for bleeding. And the premise that allows for these killing fields, the reduction of the black body, is no different than the premise that allowed for the murder of Prince Jones. The dream of acting white, of talking white, of being white, murdered Prince Jones as sure as it murders black people in Chicago with frightening regularity. Do not accept the lie. Do not drink from poison. 
The same hands that drew red lines around the life of Prince Jones drew red lines around the ghetto. I did not want to raise you in fear or false memory. I did not want you forced to mask your joys and bind your eyes. What I wanted for you was to grow into consciousness. I resolved to hide nothing from you. Do you remember when I first took you to work when you were 13? I was going to see the mother of a dead black boy. The boy had exchanged hard words with a white man and been killed because he refused to turn down his music. The killer, having emptied his gun, drove his girlfriend to a hotel. They had drinks. They ordered a pizza. And then the next day at his leisure, the man turned himself in. The man claimed to have seen a shotgun. He claimed to have been in fear for his life and to only have triumphed through righteous violence. I was the victim and the victor, he asserted, much as generations of American plunderers had asserted before. No shotgun was ever found. The claim still influenced the jury and the killer was convicted, not of the boy's murder, but of firing repeatedly as the boy's friends tried to retreat. Destroying the black body was permissible, but it would be better to do it efficiently. The mother of this murdered black boy was then taking her case before journalists and writers. We met her in the lobby of her Times Square hotel. She was medium height with brown skin and hair down to her shoulders. It had not even been a week since the verdict, but she was composed and wholly self-possessed. She did not rage at the killer, but wondered aloud if the rules she'd imparted had been enough. She had wanted her son to stand for what he believed and to be respectful, and he had died for believing his friends had a right to play their music loud, to be American teenagers. Still, she was left wondering, in my mind I keep saying, had he not spoke back, spoke up, would he still be here? She would not forget the uniqueness of her son, his singular life. She would not forget that he had a father who loved him, who took him in while she battled cancer. She would not forget that he was the life of the party, that he always had new friends for her to shuttle around in her minivan. And she would have him live on in her work. I told her the verdict angered me. I told her that the idea that someone on that jury thought it plausible there was a gun in the car baffled the mind. She said that she was baffled too, and that I should not mistake her calm probing for the absence of anger. But God had focused her anger away from revenge and toward redemption, she said. God had spoken to her and committed her to a new activism. Then the mother of the murdered boy rose, turned to you and said, You exist. You matter. You have value. You have every right to wear your hoodie, to play your music as loud as you want. You have every right to be you. And no one should deter you from being you. You have to be you. And you can never be afraid to be you. I was glad she said this. I have tried to say the same to you, and if I have not said it with the same direction and clarity, I confess that is because I am afraid. And I have no God to hold me up, and I believe that when they shatter the body, they shatter everything. And I knew that all of us, Christians, Muslims, atheists, lived in this fear of this truth. Disembodiment is a kind of terrorism, and the threat of it alters the orbit of all of our lives, and like terrorism, this distortion is intentional disembodiment, the dragon that compelled the boys I knew way back into extravagant theater of ownership, disembodiment, the demon that pushed the black middle-class survivors into aggressive passivity, our conversation restrained in public quarters, our best manners on display, 
our hands never out of pockets, our whole manner ordered as if to say, I make no sudden moves, disembodiment, the serpent of school years, demanding I be twice as good, though I was but a boy. Murder was all around us, and we knew, deep in ourselves, in some silent space, that the author of these murders was beyond us, that it suited some other person's ends. We were right. Context of White Supremacy Done with the first audio segment, uh, we will finish the book uh, with the second audio segment. If folks have commentary they would like to share, feel free to dial in. The number to dial, 641-715-3640. That number again, 641 seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate the code again for those who need it five six four nine four Three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. For folks who want to participate but you don't want to call in, feel free to use the free Vope line. Uh, works anywhere in the world. Uh, you can use your computer or mobile device, whatever you're on. Uh, number one, put in the address tiny.cc forward slash one race. And that is the number one address again tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one when you enter that address click the link on the left side of the page uh, it says uh, free vote line uh, when you click it it'll open a tiny window on your screen uh, the top line it is a drop down menu select the number that I just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the next line it will ask for the code that code again is five six four nine four three the final line it will ask for a name you can use your real name nickname uh, you can press random keys whatever you're comfortable with uh, once you get that information entered uh, click the green button at the bottom it will connect you to the live program and you should be able to hear us if you would like to participate it is the same procedure press star six you'll see the dial pad on your screen uh, you should hear a quick uh, quick audio prompt uh, to press the number one uh, I will see your hand on the switchboard and we will bring you into the conversation uh, with that I will hit the folks who have hands up uh, if folks would like since we are wrapping up uh, final thoughts on the book very short only two installments and we're all done uh, so kind of keeping in mind final thoughts general uh, summation uh, that you might have about the book uh, one question I will toss out that folks can ponder on you can respond now or after the second audio segment uh, what was the purpose for Mr. Coates writing this book and the intended audience? Uh, it is reported the audience is his 15-year-old son. 
uh, based on we've read about three quarters of the book at this point. Uh, do you you think that's accurate? I think we brought this up last week, but just do you think that's that's legit or uh, do folks have other thoughts in terms of the intended audience for this book? Uh, with that, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Feel free to respond. Yes, uh, yes, sir. We can hear you, Mr. Demery Ford. Okay, great. If I start to fade, let me know, Gus, and I'll take this headpiece off. But uh, uh, greetings, Gus, and to the other callers. Uh, he started Chapter 2 with a poem by Amira Baraka Kabai, but he didn't finish the last two verses, and I'd like to finish those. It's, we have been captured, brother, and we labor to make our getaway into the ancient image, into a new correspondence with ourselves and our black family. We read magic. Now we need the spell to rise up, return, destroy, and create what will be the sacred word. And on the side, I wrote that finding ourselves reuniting with the black family, African-Americans likened to a lost people that may require magic or spells to rise up, return to our rightful place, destroy the constraints, and create an environment free of racism, white supremacy. I'd like to start with uh, Mr. Tanahachi Coach started with Elmer Clay Newton, Newman, Gary Hopkins, and Freddie McCollum. These were incidents that happened back in the year 2000, 1999, which is over 15 years ago. And then you got Eric Gardner, Mike Brown, Freddie Gray, you know, nowadays, which brings up the question, why would he include Prince Jones in his book in 2014, 2015, I think it was released. And, you know, I think that it was purposely used because both the victim and the killer were black. Um, I have to add, too, that uh, I read an article that he wrote in 2001. It's called Black and Blue, I believe. And he was bringing up the point that uh, this tragedy, tragedy with Prince Jones happened in a black county with black officials and which is bringing up a disturbing pattern that uh, Mr. Coates have been, it looks like completion because uh, he, it's a lot of emphasis on black criticism and uh, the fact that black people were committing acts like this when the majority, it was white policemen that were killing black. 
But I'll move on that he mentioned uh, being told to be twice as good as white people to actually mean accepting half as much when the truth is that, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do when the playing field is not even. But if you think about the incident that he mentioned with the white woman pushing his son, and he responded as any parent would have, and the whites started to come together to the white woman's aid, what was interesting is that he felt ashamed after he had felt rage and pushing the white man and realizing after the white man said that he could have him arrested, that he felt ashamed that he endangered, that endangered his son's life and that he could have lost his life and his son at the same time. The system of white supremacy will cause you to exercise intelligent fear, a form of cautious and calculated hurt. White people can show you better than I can tell you. But at the tailgate party, he said that the birthmark of damnation faded and I could feel the weight of my arm and hear the heave in my breath. And I was not talking then because there was no point. My question uh, to the other callers and guys is, is Mr. Tanahashi Coates talking about being black when he mentioned the birthmark of damnation? And he also mentioned the different ways that black people grieve. Forgiving, forgiving the killer of Prince Jones or that like Dr. Jones was quoted in an article in a Washington paper saying that there was a purpose in the killing of my son. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's significant that the man who shot my son is black. And Mr. Coach on page 79, I think addressed this, but he didn't get in the book. But he said, I knew some of this even then sitting in the ranking job, even if I could not yet express it. So forgiving the killer of Prince Jones would have seemed irrelevant to me. The killer was the direct expression of all his country's belief and the raised conscience in rejection of Christian God. I could see no higher purpose in Prince's death. I think that's a direct response of the interview that he had had with Dr. Jones. And we know that he rejected uh, Christian belief. I thought it was cool that he mentioned Commodore 64, which brought back memories 
1980s, the first computer. But uh, and page 91, he mentioned the defining feature of being drafted into the black race in quotation was the inescapable robbery of time. And I thought that was interesting that he would mention the robbery of time. That, that's very essential when you think about black people and non-white dealing with a system of white supremacy. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call, bro. Yes, sir. Mr. Demery Four. Uh, if other folks are with us, have comments. Again, if you could watch the background noise, because I am picking up like uh, TV or radio or something in the background, if you uh, folks could watch that. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening to all. Um, yeah, I was I have to start at the same point. Very good points, Mr. Demery. I have a couple of the same. Um, at first, you know, as you you know, as the reading goes on, I like what he had to say about Prince Jones, and he seemed aware for not accepting an apology. And I'm like, yeah, maybe this guy isn't too bad, you know. But then he is unapologetic to a black man. The cop is black. I said, oh, okay, now I see it. So yeah, I made that. Scene. I had picked up that same thing. Um. You know, I do relate to him a lot, though, because um, I think we come from the same ever. And um, a lot of the things he says I do relate to. Um, I, I would like to have a conversation with him because I think that he's more aware than he leads on to be, you know, which is very confusing. Um, I like the story of how he realized that um, that white lady pulled rank on him. <laughs> yeah, and um, she said, you know, this wouldn't have happened in wherever he was from. Yeah, it would have happened here, too. Uh, she would have pulled rank, and it just would have been called the cops, you know, and that would have been that. Um, it was interesting because he tells his son not to appease white people to make them feel comfortable. He says something to that line, but that to me is what he does with his writing. Is he appeases white people to make them feel comfortable, so I'm shocked that he would say that to his son. And uh, lastly, you know, he has a very poetic way of expressing things. And um, it, it does seem like this is not written, written for someone, a teenager. I can't see a teenager picking this book up and just, like, getting it. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of very, I say all the time, metaphors. You know, it's very metaphoric the way he writes. And um, I'll meet my line for now. Oh, as for uh, Mr. Demery's question, um, so what was that question again? He actually said he wanted feedback. It was about the birthmark passage, but that actually we haven't got to it yet. So unless you've already oh, finished okay. the book, uh, you shouldn't be able to answer no, that no, question. No, I, I don't have that one. Okay, thank you. <laughs> right on. Uh, I'm like, I didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> that was the same thing I said. It's like, I don't remember that. And then when I found it, I was like, oh, okay. It's, we'll be able to answer it before the program ends, though. Uh, any of the other folks that dialed in with a hand up who have not shared yet, feel free. You should be with us. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings to you guys, uh, to Mr. Demery Shore, and to Thomas Smith and all the other callers and listeners. Um, the more we read this book, the more I come to understand that the white white people love this book. He does, I do agree with um, Thomas that he does write very poetically, 
and he, he writes most expressively poetically about black misery and the power of white supremacy. And I believe that white people just from, and weirdly enough, I've been listening to the Urugu session, which I think anyone who hasn't heard them, you have to, you have to listen to those, especially now hearing this book after listening to those, it's just phenomenal. And he kind of speaks in the vein of someone who has a very, very deep understanding of white supremacy. And in his poeticism, he really speaks to white dominance in a way that I think they would take pride in. Um, there's one section where he says, um, but this is on page 89, he said, that was where I saw white parents pushing double-wide strollers down gentrifying Harlem Boulevard in T-shirts and jogging shorts. Or I saw them lost in conversation with each other, mother and father, while their sons commanded entire sidewalks with their tricycles. The galaxy belonged to them, and as terror was communicated to our children, I saw mastery communicated to theirs. Streets, volumes, and white people will be clapping away at a line like that, so poetically spoken about white power, white supremacy, and how we have to raise our children from birth to understand that they're going to live a life of terror, subjugation, and brutality, and potential early death, while white people are basically told, take over the world, go on the moon, you know, put the, uh, the U.S. flag on the moon and, and take over everything else. And I found on the other section that uh, Mr. Demi brought up about the robbery of time, because that's something that you got implicitly speak about all the time. And I found that section very fascinating because if you look at uh, white supremacy in, in the overall sense, that's exactly what it was. It was robbery of our ancestors' time on the plantation. It's robbery of our time on the modern plantation. And uh, just the, the way in which he spoke to um, how that robbery of time manifested itself, especially on um, the last section of that on page 91 that, he, that uh, Mr. Demonfort was talking about, he said, the robbery of time is not measured in lifespans, but in moments. It is the last bottle of wine that you have just uncorked, but do not have time to drink. It is the kiss that you do not have time to share before she walks out of your life. This, this sentence is what got me. It is the raft of second chances for them and 23 hours a day for us. So in other words, he's telling them, our hell is 23 hours a day while your life is full of nothing but second chances. And white people love this kind of poeticism. To answer your question, I do not believe one one bit that this was written for a 15-year-old. I believe this was written for white people um, because he writes in a way that's non-offensive to them, even though you can tell that he has deep layers of his understanding of the system of white supremacy. Um, I also think that in their minds, reading this kind of black misery is just, just like the greatest aphrodisiac ever. And I would love to read his first book to see if he wrote in a um, more overt and direct way about racism, white supremacy, versus this coded language he's using here. And we can probably see his growth on maybe speaking in a much more direct and maybe conscious manner, whereas he's speaking in a more covert in, and uh, indirect and subversive, but yet conscious manner. And that was my contribution. I can just, more, the more we read, I can really see why white people would just love and laugh wrap this book up and enjoy every bit of it. Thank you. Right, right. right on. Uh, anybody else? Hand up that uh, we haven't heard from yet. Um, good evening, everyone. I absolutely agree with the caller who just spoke. I mean, especially on those three points where um, Mr. Coates just, he, he, he says so, he he talks about 
quote unquote their privilege, you know, everything, you know, like they own the whole world and he just describes it so beautifully, just going down the line, tick, 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 ticking everything that they have, how wonderful it is for them off. And he describes our misery, our misery. So, I mean, just so just like, it's just misery that doesn't compare to anything else on the planet. And I also agree with the last caller in that this was written for white people. I said, maybe I should go back and read his other works and see if uh, what he did was, uh, and this is an apology for anything that may have been a little bit more militant earlier. Maybe, maybe not. I'm just guessing on that. But I think they love it for it because the, the things that they hate most, it, there's no menace. When they say, you know, I mean, other people have described white people and all the things they've done, but in, there's also some menace in it, like, you know, well, maybe I'll get you one day, or maybe we'll find a way to get you, or, you know, and, and there's no contempt in it. Not really. There's no contempt in it. And, and so those are two things they would love to see. You know, you can describe all of this misery, and yet I don't hear any menace. I don't hear any, any, any payback. And, you know, and I don't hear any contempt. I just hear, actually, why people would just hear that uh, here's somebody where everything that we've done to them hurts them deeply because what we think and how we treat them is very important to them. And uh, they have no, he's actually exhibiting a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome. He always says, my country, our country, we yeah, and so that that's another thing that they would really love. They would jump on that. And then his sense of like hopelessness, not not uh not in saying, you know, well you guys are hopeless. It's just like our situation is so hopeless. They would love that. I mean it's like the colleague said before, it would be like dessert, it would be delicious, it would be wonderful for them. All of this stuff is so tasty for them. And then my own personal bent is earlier, like in the last session, he rejected anything. He says, you know, and I, I, all these people who are turning to uh, magic or voodoo or metaphysical or something like that, you know, they're just crazy. We should ignore all of that. And, you know, the only thing that's going to count, I guess, if he ever says anything's going to count is weapons. And white people want to hear that. They want to hear weapons. I mean, the one thing they don't want is some, you know, creepy black people like those people in Haiti doing things to them that they just don't understand. So <laughs> they want to hear you reject anything that has to do with any kind of spirituality or, or, or that's your own. And he does. He rejects all of that along with the Christianity. There's just nothing that I can see for real that, uh, that, that, that seems like he's spiritual to me. But other than that, he just... Um, it's just what they want to hear. I mean, this is what they want. This is where they want you. This is where they want you mentally, physically, emotionally, right there. And he described it perfectly. I'm done. Right on, Karma. Um, any of the folk, well, I guess number one, with all the talk about Baltimore, Freddie Gray was mentioned, the trial uh, for the... Uh, one of the six officers uh, charged with the death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore began this week. And, of course, it is the black officer uh, starting off uh, in the uh, in the case in Baltimore this week. I thought that was relevant since uh, the subject matter that we're discussing in this book. Um, any of the folks who dialed in, I guess I'll preface by saying anyone who uh, is listening who has not commented, uh, we have about 
I would say about 15 minutes, uh, maybe 20 before we get to the second audio segment. Uh, so get your hand up. But anyone uh, listening in, uh, I would really appreciate if Gus has missed the bus uh, in uh, his assessment of Mr. Coates' book, The World in Me, and how white people are responding to this book. Uh, I kind of shared some of my thoughts last week. I'll share more this week, but uh, it would be great uh, if I am wrong, because I've said that before, that um, some of my views, some of my conclusions on racism, white supremacy, they are very, very different from the conclusions that other people uh, draw, the concepts and the way that they present and discuss racism, white supremacy. I mean, they are uh, as far apart as I'm saying the answer is four and they're saying the answer is five million and two. I mean, way, way off. So if I have missed it and I'm just wrong, man, please dial in and set Gus straight if you know you have a different view on this work uh, and what he's attempting to do in the book and even how white people uh, think about this book. If you have different speculation, that would be grand. Uh, I will just pose questions. Uh, the people that have dialed in, and even if we have not heard from you, that's great too. You can dial in and, and respond. Uh, number one, what what do we make of his continued use of the metaphor that, uh, number one, of white people who believe themselves to be white that's the way that that he presents it people who believe themselves to be white uh what do we make of that and then also what do we make of his metaphor uh this trope of white people are dreamers uh that they are dreaming in what they're doing plundering black bodies and just to pull a piece from the text this is on page 140 where he says the dream of acting white of talking white, of being white, murdered Prince Jones as sure as it murders black people in Chicago with frightening regularity. Uh, and he has it throughout the book. Some of it was uh, in the book last week. So what do we make uh, of that, this continued use of this metaphor, this concept of white people are dreaming in what they do to plunder black bodies and then what do we make of his uh, his consistent phrasing uh, individuals who believe themselves to be white and I guess to give one for context this is on page 132 uh, but because they believe themselves to be white they would rather countenance a man choked to death on film under their laws and they would rather subscribe to the myth of Trayvon Martin slight teenager hands full of candy and soft drinks transforming into a murderous juggernaut and they would rather see Prince Jones followed by a bad cop through three jurisdictions and shot down for acting like a human and they would rather reach out in all their sanity and push my four-year-old son as though he were merely an obstacle in the path of their too important day those are the two questions any folks have uh, comments to those two What you just saw read the last passage, it seems to me like he's saying that maybe they're delusional. Um, they, they're seeing something that they're not. They're dreaming. Um, they're, his son isn't a little kid. You know, uh, Samir Rice was a 30-year-old man. Mike Brown was an incredible hawk. I mean, it's like a delusion that they're under. Um, um, that, that that's what I got in the context of what he read. It's like, you know, they, they don't see us for what we are. It's like they're dreaming 
And uh, I think that by him calling it a dream instead of calling it out a nightmare, it's a lot for him. Any other uh, thoughts on his uh, consistent use of, of these two phrasings that white people as dreamers or they're dreaming and uh, individuals who believe themselves to be white? Did we lose them? I'm sorry? Uh, did, were you speaking to Thomas or? Was, oh, this is open. Answer? This is this is anyone. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know if he was done this, so I thought we might have lost him. Um, I think. Okay, uh, him calling the white people dreamers. I believe that that softens the blow because he's equating white the system of white supremacy to a dream state. I, I agree with uh, Thomas on that, um, and in the, in the sense that I believe he's accurate. Accurate is when he states that they don't see us as we really are, but the reality is that that so-called dream, which is our nightmare, is the reality that we live every day, which, like he stated so eloquently and poetically once again, it's brutality and, and, and violence. Um, so I do believe that, again, that softens the blow for white people in the way it was presented, but I believe that is basically what he's equating the system of white supremacy to without being direct in his speech. And um, you have, what was the other question? The phrasing uh, individuals or groups or they believe themselves to be white, that phrasing, does that stand okay. out? Okay, now this takes me to something you said during one of the Urugu sessions, I believe it was number six. You were speaking about whiteness and you discussed the analogy of a white piece of paper. And then you also said, um, you, you know, you, if you, you were speaking to a, a female's mother who actually was uh, very confused, but her daughter listens to the show, and she happened to call, and I was listening to this today, and you were speaking about this earlier in the episode. You said that um, you know the color of Elmer's blue. You know the color of a piece of typewriter paper, and we all know that white people are not that color. So being white has more to do than do with the actual color white. It has to do with the way of thinking and the way of being. And um, I believe that that in and of itself kind of speaks to, to that concept. Um, as far as the idea that them, them being under the impression of them being white, it's basically, again, speaking to the system of white supremacy in, in another codified manner. It's not the actual color. It is the dominance that comes with the, the system that they have put in place in order to maintain that dominance over all non-white people and most brutally black people. Um, and again, I just believe it's another way of kind of softening the blow again for white people as far as them saying those who believe they're white. They're, they're white based on the system that they created. They're in com complete control of it, and they're the reason that we all call each other whatever color that we're called in this day and time. So as a result, again, it's just, to me, just softening the blow, but basically bringing home, that's why I said, Earlier, I believe he has a very deep understanding of the system of white supremacy, but he presents it in a way to white people that is completely non-offensive. And that's why just reading this book is making me want to read his first work, um, his first work, just to see what he wrote because it received such a lackluster response. So I'm assuming it might be a more African-centered um, piece of work where he's more direct in his language. 
And as he realized, oh, the white people were inviting it this one, maybe I was a little too harsh, I was a little too Amiri Baraka-ish, which is probably why he didn't finish that poem. Thank you, um, Mr. Demery, for doing so. Um, and now let me take the uh, James, from my, James from my father approach, the Barack Obama approach. I'm going to codify this. I'm going to soften the language for these white people and make it way more palatable and acceptable while exalting their brutality against white people and non-white people. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any of the other folks, uh, other folks that dialed in with yeah, you? I agree. I agree with him, and I think when he says, I believe, I think he, uh, um, those who are accepted, are accepted, take out believe and put are accepted as whites, you know, um, not believe. I think that that's a nice way of putting it where, you know, white people don't have to sit there and question the fact that, hey, maybe I'm just being accepted as a white person. Hello, can we hear Yes, ma'am. Greetings to uh, everyone. Uh, this is Misunderstanding. Um, I don't know, uh, quite simply, I to say that he, white people don't know what they're doing. Uh, dream state will be maybe you're unconscious um, and not believing that they're white. Still, to me, it goes back to the implication of saying that white people don't know that they're practicing racism. That's what I get out of that, uh, uh, those two passages. Mm-hmm. Right on. Good to hear from uh, Miss Understanding. Uh, if anybody else has comments on those two, two comments or if you have anything else that you want to make sure we get in before we hit the second audio, uh, feel free. Oh, make sure I get yes, this. Yes, sir. I was just we had actually had a listener uh, outside the states listening. <laughs> he wrote, uh, he said this book is written to explain his own life experiences to his son when he turns 15. Question mark. I really do not think so. I think his first idea for the title might have started out like that. Then it went down a rocky cliff face. This is meant for the coffee shop latte drinking white liberals to read, thinking that whites will now understand the plight of the Negro. Uh, Thomas from New York, uh, his assessment was correct. He gives white people a way out. It's like you whites do this, but we blacks do that. So the average whites will see it as just ignorance of both groups. Yes, racism of the past and ignorance and prejudice from the 70s onwards, but not a refinement to the war being raged upon, in his words, the black body and a nice healthy, healthy dose of black homophobia always seems to raise its head. That was his comment from outside the state. Mr. Demery for proceed. Yes. I think what I have a problem with is that between Mr. Tanahashi Coach and James Baldwin seem to be the two authors that can get inside of white people's minds and then let us know what white people are thinking. So I have a problem with a black person uh, saying what white people are thinking. On page 98, it was saying, this is the foundation of the dream. It adherence must not just believe in it, but believe that it is just, believe in their possession 
of the dream is the natural result of grit, honor, and good works, there's some passing acknowledgement of the bad old days, which, by the way, were not so bad as to have any ongoing effect on our present. So if this guy thinks that he can tell you what white people are thinking, then he's given them a pass by saying that they are dreamers and actually uh, creating white people to be victims. And I don't think he has a right to do that, you know, and I think that he's incorrect in minimizing, you know, the uh, culpability that whites have on creating the system of white supremacy, maintaining it, and refining it. And the whole fact of just saying people who call themselves or consider themselves white is just another way of giving them a break. They know what it means to be white and then this rendition of what he thinks it means to be white may not even be correct. I'll mute my line. Definitely uh, make sure I get in the passage, the paragraph uh, where he's writing about information about Gettysburg and uh, this area where black people resided. Uh, and he says uh, this was black, uh, black male uh, Brian uh, during the 19th century Civil War period where he says Brian and his family fled their home for fear of losing their bodies to the advancing army of enslavement led by the honored and holy Confederate General Robert E. Lee, whose army was then stealing black people from themselves and selling them south. Uh, great uh, information to add that to our understanding of the long legacy of terrorism against black people. Uh, folks that are listening in, if you you know have a different assessment of the text and uh, you think something else is going on with the book and what Mr. Coates was trying to accomplish or even, you know, white people's assessment of the text, definitely dial in. If, you know, I just have misunderstood what's happening here, I have erred in my analysis, definitely uh, set set gush straight uh, and just, you know, offer your view if you have some thoughts before we uh, wrap things up. Um, I was going to make one quick comment, unless anybody else had anything else they wanted to make sure they got in before we get to audio too. anybody else. Yeah, as for the Civil War part, man, he did another great, um, man, he said that at the time when, when the slavery ended, uh, I think he said the total value of slaves was worth $40 billion. And I was like, wow, you know, that's what, in that time, big money, man, no wonder. And I think he has a lot of great information about um, the Civil War. And I would love if he wrote a book about it, but not trying to appease white people, put it out there, you know, lay it out. Mm. Right, right. I'll make sure I get it. And I know definitely uh, I am not a parent. I do not have children. That said, I know it can be uh, painful uh, to acknowledge the weakness of being uh, an attempted black parent under uh, the system of white terrorism. Uh, and the helplessness that you can find yourself in in different situations and trying to 
uh, respond and, and trying and failing to protect your offspring. Uh, definitely appreciate uh, sharing that. But uh, again, it was it was interesting. I think you all already uh, noted some of the, the interesting ways that that experience was described uh, within the book. Uh, but definitely appreciate uh, sharing that anecdote because I know it, it is uh, extremely unpleasant to have to, you know, acknowledge, reveal uh, how vulnerable and weak, are, weak we are in the system of white supremacy. And great illustration, white girls do it better uh, for those of us who unfortunately do not think of white women as race soldiers and terrorists. Great illustration of a white, not just a white woman mistreating anyone, but a white woman mistreating a four-year-old child. Like, move, nigga, get out of my way. I got, you know, things to do. Grant uh, to have that illustration. I hope that is not lost uh, on readers. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get to a second audio segment. If uh, folks, other folks that are listening in, if you didn't get your comment in, uh, we should have ample time uh, once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, those are kind of major themes that I'm encouraging folks to think about. Uh, we are told that this book was meant as a letter to his 15-year-old uh, black child, black son. Uh, and I'm just encouraging folks to think as we wrap up the book, who do you think the audience was? Was it intended for his black son or... You know, do you think something else is, is going on here with who's supposed to be uh, flipping the pages? Uh, also, the, the phrasing uh, dreamer, because I suspect that that's going to continue to come up. You can think about that as we hear it used uh, going down the stretch, as well as the uh, they believe themselves to be white. How are we interrogating it? What does that mean? I think I agree or it's not. I think I do agree with a lot of the folks that are here. I think it's obvious. Mr. Coates has uh, a wealth of information about the system of white supremacy i think that's on display so i think we should keep that in mind as we go with how this book is constructed and written uh with that we will get started second audio segment the conclusion very short book so we will be all done and moving on to the next book for next week uh but right now the conclusion Tanahasi coates between the world and me audio segment number two context of white supremacy here is how i take the measure of my progress in life I imagine myself as I was back there in West Baltimore, dodging North and Pulaski, ducking Murphy Holmes, fearful of the schools and the streets, and I imagine showing that lost boy a portrait of my present life and asking him what he would make of it. Only once, in the two years after your birth, in the first two rounds of the fight of my life, have I believed he would have been disappointed. I write you at the precipice of my 40th year, having come to a point in my life not of great prominence, but far beyond anything that boy could have even imagined. I did not master the streets because I could not read the body language quick enough. I did not master the schools because I could not see where any of it could possibly lead. But I did not fall. I have my family. I have my work. I no longer feel it necessary to hang my head at parties and tell people that I am trying to be a writer. And godless though I am, the fact of being human, the fact of possessing the gift of study, and thus being remarkable among all the matter floating through the cosmos, still awes me. I have spent much of my study searching for the right question by which I might fully understand the breach between the world and me. I have not spent my time studying the problem of race. Race itself is just a restatement and retrenchment of the problem. You see this from time to time when some dullard, usually believing himself white, proposes that the way forward is a grand orgy of black and white, ending only when we are all beige and thus the same race. 
But a great number of black people already are beige, and the history of civilization is littered with dead races, Frankish, Italian, German, Irish, later abandoned because they no longer serve their purpose, the organization of people beneath and beyond the umbrella of rights. If my life ended today, I would tell you that it was a happy life, that I drew great joy from the study, from the struggle toward which I now urge you. You have seen in this conversation that the struggle has ruptured and remade me several times over, in Baltimore, at the Mecca, in fatherhood, in New York. The changes have awarded me a rapture that comes only when you can no longer be lied to, when you have rejected the dream. But even more, the changes have taught me how to best exploit that singular gift of study, to question what I see, then to question what I see after that, because the questions matter as much, perhaps more than, the answers. But oh my eyes. When I was a boy, no portion of my body suffered more than my eyes. If I have done well by the measure of childhood, it must be added that those measures themselves are hampered by how little a boy of my captive class had seen. The dream seemed to be the pinnacle then, to grow rich and live in one of those disconnected houses out in the country, in one of those small communities, one of those cul-de-sacs with its gently curving ways, where they staged teen movies and children built tree houses, and in that last lost year before college, teenagers made love and cars parked at the lake. The dream seemed to be the end of the world for me, the height of American ambition, what more could possibly exist beyond the dispatches, beyond the suburbs? Your mother knew. Perhaps it was because she was raised within the physical borders of such a place, because she lived in proximity with the dreamers. Perhaps it was because the people who thought they were white told her she was smart and followed this up by telling her she was not really black, meaning it as a compliment. Perhaps it was the boys out there who were in fact black, telling her she was pretty for a dark-skinned girl. Your mother never felt quite at home, and this made the possibility of some other place essential to her, propelling her to the Mecca, propelling her to New York and then beyond. On her 30th birthday, she took a trip to Paris. I am not sure you remember. You were only six. We spent that week eating fried fish for breakfast and cake for dinner, leaving underwear on the counter and blasting Ghostface Killer. It had never occurred to me to leave America, not even temporarily. My eyes. My friend Jelani, who came up the same as me, once said that he used to think of traveling as a pointless luxury, like blowing the rent check on a pink suit. And I felt much the same then. I was bemused at your mother's dreams of Paris. I could not understand them, and I did not think I needed to. Some part of me was still back in that seventh grade French class, thinking only of the immediate security of my body, regarding France as one might regard Jupiter. But now your mother had gone and done it, and when she returned, her eyes were dancing with all the possibilities out there, not just for her, but for you and for me. It is quite ridiculous how the feeling spread. It was like falling in love. The things that get you are so small. The things that keep you up at night are so particular to you that when you try to explain, the only reward anyone can give you is a dumb, polite nod. Your mother had taken many pictures all through Paris of doors, giant doors, deep blue, ebony, orange, turquoise, and burning red doors. I examined the pictures of these giant doors in our small Harlem apartment. I had never seen anything like them. 
It had never occurred to me that such giant doors could exist, could be so common in one part of the world and totally absent in another. And it occurred to me, listening to your mother, that France was not a thought experiment, but an actual place filled with actual people whose traditions were different, whose lives really were different, whose sense of beauty was different. When I look back, I know that I was then getting the message from all over. By that time, my friends included a great number of people with ties to different worlds. Make the race proud, the elders used to say. But by then, I knew that I wasn't so much bound to a biological race as to a group of people, and these people were not black because of any uniform color or any uniform physical feature. They were bound because they suffered under the weight of the dream, and they were bound by all the beautiful things, all the language and mannerisms, all the food and music, all the literature and philosophy, all the common language that they had fashioned like diamonds under the weight of the dream. Not long ago, I was standing in an airport retrieving a bag from a conveyor belt. I bumped into a young black man and said, my bad. Without even looking up, he said, you straight. And in that exchange, there was so much of the private rapport that can only exist between two particular strangers of this tribe that we call black. In other words, I was part of a world. And looking out, I had friends who too were part of other worlds. The world of Jews or New Yorkers, the world of Southerners or gay men, of immigrants, of Californians, of Native Americans, or a combination of any of these worlds stitched into worlds like tapestry. And though I could never myself be a native of any of these worlds, I knew that nothing so essentialist as race stood between us. I had read too much by then, and my eyes, my beautiful, precious eyes, were growing stronger each day. And I saw that what divided me from the world was not anything intrinsic to us, but the actual injury done by people intent on naming us, intent on believing that what they have named us matters more than anything we could ever actually do. In America, the injury is not in being born with darker skin, with fuller lips, with a broader nose, but in everything that happens after. In that single exchange with that young man, I was speaking the personal language of my people. It was the briefest intimacy, but it captured much of the beauty of my black world, the ease between your mother and me, the miracle at the Mecca, the way I feel myself disappear on the streets of Harlem. To call that feeling racial is to hand over all those diamonds fashioned by our ancestors to the plunderer. We made that feeling, though it was forged in the shadow of the murdered, the raped, the disembodied. We made it all the same. This is the beautiful thing that I have seen with my own eyes, and I think I needed this vantage point before I could journey out. I think I needed to know that I was from somewhere, that my home was as beautiful as any other. Seven years after I saw the pictures of those doors, I received my first adult passport. I wish I had come to it sooner. I wish when I was back in that French class that I had connected the conjugations, verbs, and gendered nouns to something grander. I wish someone had told me what that class really was, a gate to some other blue world. I wanted to see that world myself, to see the doors and everything behind them. The day of my departure, I sat in a restaurant with your mother, who'd shown me so much. I told her, I am afraid. I didn't really speak the language. I did not know the customs. I would be alone. She just listened and held my hand. And that night, I boarded a starship. The starship punched out into the dark, punched through the sky, punched out past West Baltimore, punched out past the Mecca, 
past New York, past any language and every spectrum known to me. My ticket took me to Geneva first. Everything happened very fast. I had to change money. I needed to find a train from the airport into the city, and after that find another train to Paris. Some months earlier, I had begun a halting study of the French language. Now I was in a storm of French, drenched really, and only equipped to catch drops of the language. Who? Euros. You. To the right. I was still very afraid. I surveyed the railway schedule and became aware that I was one wrong ticket from Vienna, Milan, or some alpine village that no one I knew had ever heard of. It happened right then. The realization of being far gone, the fear, the unknowable possibilities, all of it, the horror, the wonder, the joy, fused into an erotic thrill. The thrill was not wholly alien. It was close to the wave that came over me in Moreland. It was kin to the narcotic shot I'd gotten watching the people with their wine glasses spill out onto West Broadway. It was all that I'd felt looking at those Parisian doors. And at that moment, I realized that those changes, with all their agony, awkwardness, and confusion, were the defining fact of my life. And for the first time, I knew not only that I really was alive, that I really was studying and observing, but that I had long been alive, even back in Baltimore. I had always been alive. I was always translating. I arrived in Paris. I checked into a hotel in the 6th arrondissement. I had no understanding of the local history at all. I did not think much about Baldwin or Wright. I had not read Sartre nor Camus, and if I walked past Café de Flore or Les Deux Magots, I did not then take any particular note. None of that mattered. It was Friday, and what mattered were the streets thronged with people in amazing configurations, teenagers together in cafes, school children kicking a soccer ball on the street, backpacks to the side, older couples in long coats, billowing scarves and blazers, 20-somethings leaning out of any number of establishments looking beautiful and cool. It recalled New York but without the low-grade, ever-present fear. The people wore no armor, or none that I recognized. Side streets and alleys were bursting with bars, restaurants, and cafes. Everyone was walking. Those who were not walking were embracing. I was feeling myself beyond any natural right. My Caesar was geometric. My lineup was sharp as a sword. I walked outside and melted into the city like butter in the stew. In my mind, I heard Big Boy sing. I'm just a player like that. My jeans were sharply creased. I got a fresh white t-shirt and my cap is slightly pointed east. I had dinner with a friend. The restaurant was the size of two large living rooms. The tables were jammed together, and to be seated, the waitress employed a kind of magic, pulling one table out and then wedging you in like a child in a high chair. You had to summon her to use the toilet. When it was time to order, I flailed at her with my catastrophic French. She nodded and did not laugh. She gave no false manners. We had an incredible bottle of wine. I had steak. I had a baguette with bone marrow. I had liver. I had an espresso and a dessert I can't even name. Using all the French I could muster, I tried to tell the waitress the meal was magnificent. She cut me off in English. The best you've ever had, right? I rose to walk, and despite having inhaled half the menu, I felt easy as a featherweight. The next day, I got up early and walked through the city. I visited the Musée Rodin. I stopped in a bistro, and with all the fear of a boy approaching a beautiful girl at a party, I ordered two beers and then a burger. I walked to Les Jardins du Luxembourg. 
It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. I took a seat. The garden was bursting with people, again, in all their alien ways. At that moment, a strange loneliness took hold. Perhaps it was that I had not spoken a single word of English that entire day. Perhaps it was that I had never sat in a public garden before, had not even known it to be something I'd want to do. And all around me there were people who did this regularly. It occurred to me that I really was in someone else's country, and yet, in some necessary way, I was outside of their country. In America, I was part of an equation, even if it wasn't a part I relished. I was the one the police stopped on 23rd Street in the middle of a workday. I was the one driven to the Mecca. I was not just a father, but the father of a black boy. I was not just a spouse, but the husband of a black woman, a freighted symbol of black love. But sitting in that garden, for the first time, I was an alien. I was a sailor, landless and disconnected. And I was sorry that I had never felt this particular loneliness before, that I had never felt myself so far outside of someone else's dream. Now I felt the deeper weight of my generational chains, my body confined by history and policy to certain zones. Some of us make it out, but the game is played with loaded dice. I wished I had known more, and I wished I had known it sooner. I remember that night watching the teenagers gathering along the pathway near the sun to do all their teenage things. And I remember thinking how much I would have loved for that to have been my life, how much I would have loved to have a past apart from the fear. I did not have that past in hand or memory, but I had you. We came back to Paris that summer because your mother loved the city and because I loved the language, but above all, because of you. I wanted you to have your own life apart from fear, even apart from me. I am wounded. I am marked by old codes which shielded me in one world and then chained me in the next. I think of your grandmother calling me and noting how you were growing tall and would one day try to test me. And I said to her that I would regard that day, should it come, as the total failure of fatherhood, because if all I had over you were my hands, then I really had nothing at all. But forgive me, son. I knew what she meant. And when you were younger, I thought the same. And I am now ashamed of the thought, ashamed of my fear, of the generational chains I tried to clasp onto your wrists. We are entering our last years together, and I wish I had been softer with you. Your mother had to teach me how to love you, how to kiss you, and tell you I love you every night. Even now, it does not feel a wholly natural act so much as it feels like ritual, and that is because I am wounded. That is because I am tied to old ways which I learned in a hard house. It was a loving house, even as it was besieged by its country, but it was hard. Even in Paris, I could not shake the old ways, the instinct to watch my back at every pass and always be ready to go. A few weeks into our stay, I made a friend who wanted to improve his English as much as I wanted to improve my French. We met one day out in the crowd in front of Notre Dame. We walked to the Latin Quarter. We walked to a wine shop. Outside the wine shop, there was seating. We sat and drank a bottle of red. We were served heaping piles of meats, bread, and cheese. Was this dinner? Did people do this? I had not even known how to imagine it. And more, was this all some elaborate ritual to get an angle on me? My friend paid. I thanked him. But when we left, I made sure he walked out first. He wanted to show me one of those old buildings that seemed to be around every corner in that city. And the entire time he was leading me, I was sure he was going to make a quick turn into an alley where some dudes would be waiting to strip me of... What, exactly? 
but my new friend simply showed me the building, shook my hand, gave a fine bonsoir, and walked off into the wide open night. And watching him walk away, I felt I had missed part of the experience because of my eyes, because my eyes were made in Baltimore, because my eyes were blindfolded by fear. What I wanted was to put as much distance between you and that blinding fear as possible. I wanted you to see different people living by different rules. I wanted you to see the couples sitting next to each other in the cafes, turned out to watch the street, the women pedaling their old bikes up the streets without helmets in long white dresses, the women whizzing past in Daisy Dukes and pink roller skates. I wanted you to see the men in salmon-colored pants and white linen and bright sweaters tied around their necks, the men who disappeared around corners and circled back in luxury cars with the top down, loving their lives, all of them smoking, all of them knowing that either grisly death or an orgy awaited them just around the corner. Do you remember how your eyes lit up like candles when we stood out on Saint-Germain-de-Pré? That look was all that I lived for. And even then, I wanted you to be conscious, to understand that to be distanced if only for a moment from fear is not a passport out of the struggle. We will always be black, you and I, even if it means different things in different places. France is built on its own dream, on its collection of bodies. And recall that your very name is drawn from a man who opposed France and its national project of theft by colonization. It is true that our color was not our distinguishing feature there, so much as the Americanness represented in our poor handle on French. And it is true that there is something particular about how the Americans who think they are white regard us, something sexual and obscene. We were not enslaved in France. We are not their particular problem nor their national guilt. We are not their niggers. If there is any comfort in this, it is not the kind that I would encourage you to indulge. Remember your name. Remember that you and I are brothers, are the children of transatlantic rape. Remember the broader consciousness that comes with that. Remember that this consciousness can never ultimately be racial. It must be cosmic. Remember the Roma you saw begging with their children in the street and the venom with which they were addressed. Remember the Algerian cab driver speaking openly of his hatred of Paris, then looking at your mother and me and insisting that we were all united under Africa. Remember the rumbling we all felt under the beauty of Paris, as though the city had been built in abeyance of Pompeii. Remember the feeling that the great public gardens, the long lunches, might all be undone by a physics, cousin to our rules and the reckoning of our own country that we do not fully comprehend. It was good to have your Uncle Ben and your Aunt Janae there. Someone else who had to balance the awe of what these people had built and the fact of whom they built so much of it upon. Someone else who'd learned to travel in adulthood. People who'd been black in America and were mostly concerned with the safety of their bodies. And we were all aware that the forces that held back our bodies, back at home, were not unrelated to those that had given France its wealth. We were aware that much of what they had done was built on the plunder of Haitian bodies, on the plunder of Wolof bodies, on the destruction of the Tocolor, on the taking of Bissan Dugu. That was the same summer that the killer of Trayvon Martin was acquitted, the summer I realized that I accepted that there is no velocity of escape. Home would find us in any language. Remember when we took the train up to Place de la Nation to celebrate your birthday with Janae and Ben and the kids? Remember the young man standing outside the subway in protest. Do you remember his sign? 
Vive le combat des gens contre le crime raciste. USA. Trevor Martin, 17 ans, assassiné Carl Noir et le raciste acquitté. I did not die in my aimless youth. I did not perish in the agony of not knowing. I was not jailed. I had proven to myself that there was another way beyond the schools and the streets. I felt myself to be among the survivors of some great natural disaster, some plague, some avalanche or earthquake. And now, living in the wake of a decimation and having arrived at a land that I once considered mythical, everything seemed cast in a halo. The pastel Parisian scarves burned brighter. The morning odor wafting out of the boulangeries was hypnotic and the language all around me struck me not so much as language, but as dance. Your route will be different. It must be. You knew things at 11 that I did not know when I was 25. When I was 11, my highest priority was the simple security of my body. My life was the immediate negotiation of violence within my house and without. But already you have expectations. I see that in you. Survival and safety are not enough. Your hopes... Your dreams, if you will, leave me with an array of warring emotions. I am so very proud of you, your openness, your ambition, your aggression, your intelligence. My job, in the little time we have left together, is to match that intelligence with wisdom. Part of that wisdom is understanding what you were given. A city where gay bars are unremarkable. A soccer team on which half the players speak some other language. What I am saying is that it does not all belong to you, that the beauty in you is not strictly yours and is largely the result of enjoying an abnormal amount of security in your black body. Perhaps that is why when you discovered that the killer of Mike Brown would go unpunished, you told me you had to go. Perhaps that is why you were crying, because in that moment you understood that even your relatively privileged security can never match a sustained assault launched in the name of the dream. Our current politics tell you that should you fall victim to such an assault and lose your body, it somehow must be your fault. Trayvon Martin's hoodie got him killed. Jordan Davis's loud music did the same. John Crawford should never have touched the rifle on display. Kajimi Powell should have known not to be crazy. And all of them should have had fathers, even the ones who had fathers, even you. Without its own justifications, the dream would collapse upon itself. You first learned this from Michael Brown. I first learned it from Prince Jones. Michael Brown did not die as so many of his defenders supposed, and still the questions behind the questions are never asked. Should assaulting an officer of the state be a capital offense rendered without trial with the officer as judge and executioner? Is that what we wish civilization to be? And all the time the dreamers are pillaging Ferguson for municipal governance, and they are torturing Muslims, and their drones are bombing wedding parties by accident, and the dreamers are quoting Martin Luther King and exalting nonviolence for the weak and the biggest guns for the strong. Each time a police officer engages us, death, injury, maiming is possible. It is not enough to say that this is true of anyone or more true of criminals. The moment the officers began their pursuit of Prince Jones, his life was in danger. The dreamers accept this as the cost of doing business, accept our bodies as currency because it is their tradition. As slaves, we were this country's first windfall, the down payment on its freedom. 
After the ruin and liberation of the Civil War came redemption for the unrepentant South and reunion, and our bodies became this country's second mortgage. In the New Deal, we were their guest room, their finished basement. And today, with a sprawling prison system, which has turned the warehousing of black bodies into a jobs program for dreamers and a lucrative investment for dreamers, today, when 8% of the world's prisoners are black men, our bodies have refinanced the dream of being white. Black life is cheap, but in America, black bodies are a natural resource of incomparable value. 3. And have brought humanity to the edge of oblivion because they think they are white. James Baldwin In the years after Prince Jones died, I thought often of those who were left to make their lives in the shadow of his death. I thought of his fiancée and wondered what it meant to see the future upended with no explanation. I wondered what she would tell his daughter, and I wondered how his daughter would imagine her father when she would miss him, how she would detail the loss. But mostly I wondered about Prince's mother, and the question I mostly asked myself was always the same. How did she live? I searched for her phone number online. I emailed her. She responded. Then I called and made an appointment to visit. And living she was, just outside of Philadelphia, in a small gated community of affluent homes. It was a rainy Tuesday when I arrived. I had taken the train in from New York and then picked up a rental car. I was thinking of Prince a lot in those months before. You, your mother, and I had gone to homecoming at the Mecca, and so many of my friends were there, and Prince was not. Dr. Jones greeted me at the door. She was lovely, polite, brown. She appeared to be somewhere in that range between 40 and 70 years, when it becomes difficult to precisely ascertain a black person's precise age. She was well-composed given the subject of our conversation, and for most of the visit I struggled to separate how she actually felt from what I felt she must be feeling. What I felt right then was that she was smiling through pained eyes, that the reason for my visit had spread sadness like a dark quilt over the whole house. I seemed to recall music, jazz or gospel playing in the back, but conflicting with that I also remember a deep quiet overcoming everything. I thought that perhaps she had been crying, I could not tell for sure. She led me into her large living room. There was no one else in the house. It was early January. Her Christmas tree was still standing at the end of the room, and there were stockings bearing the name of her daughter and her lost son, and there was a framed picture of him, Prince Jones, on a display table. She brought me water in a heavy glass. She drank tea. She told me that she was born and raised outside of Opelousas, Louisiana, that her ancestors had been enslaved in that same region, and that as a consequence of that enslavement, a fear echoed down through the ages. It first became clear when I was four, she told me. My mother and I were going into the city. We got on the Greyhound bus. I was behind my mother. She wasn't holding my hand at the time, and I plopped down in the first seat I found. A few minutes later, my mother was looking for me, and she took me to the back of the bus and explained why I couldn't sit there. We were very poor, and most of the black people around us who I knew were poor also, and the images I had of white America were from going into the city and seeing who was behind the counter in the stores and seeing who my mother worked for. It became clear there was a distance. This chasm makes itself known to all of us in all kinds of ways. A little girl wanders home at age seven after being teased in school, 
and ask her parents, are we niggas and what does that mean? Sometimes it is subtle, the simple observation of who lives where and works what job and who does not. Sometimes it's all of it at once. I have never asked how you became personally aware of the distance. Was it Mike Brown? I don't think I want to know. But I know that it has happened to you already, that you have deduced that you are privileged and yet still different from other privileged children because you are the bearer of a body more fragile than any other in this country. What I want you to know is that this is not your fault, even if it is ultimately your responsibility. It is your responsibility because you are surrounded by the dreamers. It has nothing to do with how you wear your pants or how you style your hair. The breach is as intentional as policy, as intentional as the forgetting that follows. The breach allows for the efficient sorting of the plundered from the plunderers, the enslaved from the enslavers, sharecroppers from landholders, cannibals from food. Dr. Jones was reserved. She was what people once referred to as a lady, and in that sense reminded me of my grandmother, who was a single mother in the projects, but always spoke as though she had nice things. And when Dr. Jones described her motive for escaping the dirt that marked the sharecropper life of her father and all the others around her, when she remembered herself saying, I'm not going to live like this, I saw the iron in her eyes, and I remembered the iron in my grandmother's eyes. You must barely remember her by now. You were six when she died. I remember her, of course, but by the time I knew her, her exploits, how, for instance, she scrubbed white people's floors during the day and went to school at night, were legend. But I still could feel the power and rectitude that propelled her out of the projects and into home ownership. It was the same power I felt in the presence of Dr. Jones. When she was in second grade, she and another girl made a pact that they would both become doctors, and she held up her end of the bargain. But first she integrated the high school in her town. At the beginning, she fought the white children who insulted her. At the end, they voted her class president. She ran track. It was a great entree, she told me, but it only brought her so far into their world. At football games, the other students would cheer the star black running back. And when a black player on the other team got the ball, they'd yell, Kill that nigger! Kill that nigger! They would yell this sitting right next to her, as though she really were not there. She gave Bible recitations as a child and told me the story of her recruitment into this business. Her mother took her to audition for the junior choir. Afterward, the choir director said, Honey, I think you should talk. She was laughing lightly now, not uproariously, still in control of her body. I felt that she was warming up. As she talked of the church, I thought of your grandfather, the one you know and how his first intellectual adventures were found in the recitation of Bible passages. I thought of your mother who did the same, and I thought of my own distance from an institution that has so often been the only support for our people. I often wonder if in that distance I've missed something, some notions of cosmic hope, some wisdom beyond my mean physical perception of the world, something beyond the body that I might have transmitted to you. I wondered this at that particular moment because something beyond anything I have ever understood drove Mabel Jones to an exceptional life. She went to college on full scholarship. She went to med school at Louisiana State University. She served in the Navy. She took up radiology. She did not then know any other black radiologists. I assumed that this would have been hard on her, but she was insulted by the assumption. She could not acknowledge any discomfort and she did not speak of herself as remarkable because it conceded too much. 
because it sanctified tribal expectations when the only expectation that mattered should be rooted in an assessment of Mabel Jones. And by those lights, there was nothing surprising in her success, because Mabel Jones was always pedaled to the floor, not over or around, but through, and if she was going to do it, it must be done to death. Her disposition toward life was that of an elite athlete who knows the opponent is dirty and the refs are on the take, but also knows the championship is one game away. She called her son, Prince Jones, Rocky, in honor of her grandfather who went by Rock. I asked about his childhood because the fact is that I had not known Prince all that well. He was among the people I would be happy to see at a party whom I would describe to a friend as a good brother, though I could not really account for his comings and goings. So she sketched him for me so that I might better understand. She said that he once hammered a nail into an electrical socket and shorted out the entire house. She said that he once dressed himself in a suit and tie, got down on one knee, and sang three times a lady to her. She said that he'd gone to private schools his entire life, schools filled with dreamers, but he made friends wherever he went, in Louisiana and later in Texas. I asked her how his friend's parents treated her. By then I was the chief of radiology at the local hospital, she said and so they treated me with respect. She said this with no love in her eye, coldly, as though she were explaining a mathematical function. Like his mother, Prince was smart. In high school, he was admitted to a Texas magnet school for math and science, where students acquire college credit. Despite the school drawing from a state with roughly the population of Angola, Australia, or Afghanistan, Prince was the only black child. I asked Dr. Jones if she had wanted him to go to Howard, she smiled and said, no. Then she added, it's so nice to be able to talk about this. This relaxed me a little because I could not think of myself as something more than an intrusion. I asked where she had wanted him to go for college. She said, Harvard. And if not Harvard, Princeton. And if not Princeton, Yale. And if not Yale, Columbia. And if not Columbia, Stanford. He was that caliber of student. But like at least one-third of all the students who came to Howard, Prince was tired of having to represent to other people. These Howard students were not like me. They were the children of the Jackie Robinson elite, whose parents rose up out of the ghettos and the sharecropping fields, went out into the suburbs, only to find that they carried the mark with them and could not escape. Even when they succeeded, as so many of them did, they were singled out, made examples of, transfigured into parables of diversity. They were symbols and markers, never children or young adults. And so they come to Howard to be normal, and even more, to see how broad the black normal really is. Prince did not apply to Harvard, nor Princeton, nor Yale, nor Columbia, nor Stanford. He only wanted the Mecca. I asked Dr. Jones if she regretted Prince choosing Howard. She gasped. It was as though I had pushed too hard on a bruise. No, she said. I regret that he is dead. She said this with great composure and greater pain. She said this with all of the odd poise and direction that the great American injury demands of you. Have you ever taken a hard look at those pictures from the sit-ins in the 60s? A hard, serious look. Have you ever looked at the faces? The faces are neither angry nor sad nor joyous. They betray almost no emotion. They look out past their tormentors, past us, and focus on something way beyond anything known to me. I think they are fastened to their God, a God whom I cannot know and in whom I do not believe. 
but God or not, the armor is all over them, and it is real. Or perhaps it is not armor at all. Perhaps it is life extension, a kind of loan allowing you to take the assaults heaped upon you now and pay down the debt later. Whatever it is, that same look I see in those pictures, noble and vacuous, was the look I saw in Mabel Jones. It was in her sharp brown eyes, which welled but did not break. She held so much under her control, and I was sure the days since her rocky was plundered, since her lineage was robbed, had demanded nothing less. And she could not lean on her country for help. When it came to her son, Dr. Jones's country did what it does best. It forgot him. The forgetting is habit, is yet another necessary component of the dream. They have forgotten the scale of theft that enriched them in slavery, the terror that allowed them for a century to pilfer the vote, the segregationist policy that gave them their suburbs. They have forgotten because to remember would tumble them out of the beautiful dream and force them to live down here with us, down here in the world. I am convinced that the dreamers, at least the dreamers of today, would rather live white than live free. In the dream they are Buck Rogers, Prince Aragorn, an entire race of Skywalkers. To awaken them is to reveal that they are an empire of humans, and like all empires of humans, are built on the destruction of the body. It is to stain their nobility, to make them vulnerable, fallible, breakable humans. Dr. Jones was asleep when the phone rang. It was 5 a.m., and on the phone was a detective telling her she should drive to Washington. Rocky was in the hospital. Rocky had been shot. She drove with her daughter. She was sure he was still alive. She paused several times as she explained this. She went directly to the ICU. Rocky was not there. A group of men with authority, doctors, lawyers, detectives perhaps, took her into a room and told her he was gone. She paused again. She did not cry. Composure was too important now. It was unlike anything I had felt before, she told me. It was extremely physically painful. So much so that whenever a thought of him would come to mind, all I could do was pray and ask for mercy. I thought I was going to lose my mind and go crazy. I felt sick. I felt like I was dying. I asked if she expected that the police officer who had shot Prince would be charged. She said, yes. Her voice was a cocktail of emotions. She spoke like an American, with the same expectations of fairness, even fairness belated and begrudged, that she took into medical school all those years ago. And she spoke like a black woman, with all the pain that undercuts those exact feelings. I now wondered about her daughter, who'd been recently married. There was a picture on display of this daughter and her new husband. Dr. Jones was not optimistic. She was intensely worried about her daughter bringing a son into America because she could not save him. She could not secure his body from the ritual violence that had claimed her son. She compared America to Rome. She said that she thought the glory days of this country had long ago passed, and even those glory days were sullied. They had been built on the bodies of others. And we can't get the message, she said. We don't understand that we are embracing our deaths. I asked Dr. Jones if her mother was still alive. She told me her mother passed away in 2002 at the age of 89. I asked Dr. Jones how her mother had taken Prince's death, and her voice retreated into an almost whisper, and Dr. Jones said, I don't know that she did. 
She alluded to twelve years a slave. There he was, she said, speaking of Solomon Northrup. He had means. He had a family. He was living like a human being, and one racist act took him back. And the same is true of me. I spent years developing a career, acquiring assets, engaging responsibilities. And one racist act, it's all it takes. And then she talked again of all that she had through great industry, through unceasing labor, acquired in the long journey from grinding poverty. She spoke of how her children had been raised in the lap of luxury, annual ski trips, jaunts off to Europe. She said that when her daughter was studying Shakespeare in high school, she took her to England. And when her daughter got her license at 16, a Mazda 626 was waiting in front. I sensed some connection to this desire to give and the raw poverty of her youth. I sensed that it was all as much for her as it was for her children. She said that Prince had never taken to material things. He loved to read. He loved to travel. But when he turned 23, she bought him a Jeep. She had a huge purple bow put on it. She told me that she could still see him there, looking at the Jeep and simply saying, Thank you, Mom. Without interruption, she added, And that was the Jeep he was killed in. After I left, I sat in the car idle for a few minutes. I thought of all that Prince's mother had invested in him and all that was lost. I thought of the loneliness that sent him to the Mecca and how the Mecca, how we could not save him, how we ultimately cannot save ourselves. I thought back on the sit-ins, the protesters with their stoic faces, the ones I'd once scorned for hurling their bodies at the worst things in life. Perhaps they had known something terrible about the world. Perhaps they so willingly parted with the security and sanctity of the black body because neither security nor sanctity existed in the first place. And all those old photographs from the 1960s, all those films I beheld of black people prostrate before clubs and dogs were not simply shameful, indeed were not shameful at all. They were just true. We are captured, brother, surrounded by the majoritarian bandits of America, and this has happened here in our only home. And the terrible truth is that we cannot will ourselves to an escape on our own. Perhaps that was, is, the hope of the movement. To awaken the dreamers. To rouse them to the facts of what their need to be white. To talk like they are white. To think that they are white. Which is to think that they are beyond the design flaws of humanity. Has done to the world. But you cannot arrange your life around them and the small chance of the dreamers coming into consciousness. Our moment is too brief, our bodies are too precious, and you are here now, and you must live. And there is so much out there to live for, not just in someone else's country, but in your own home. The warmth of dark energies that drew me to the Mecca, that drew out Prince Jones, the warmth of our particular world is beautiful, no matter how brief and breakable. I think back to our trip to homecoming. I think back to the warm blast rolling over us. We were at the football game. We were sitting in the bleachers with old friends and their children, caring for neither fumbles nor first downs. I remember looking toward the goalposts and watching a pack of alumni cheerleaders so enamored with Howard University that they donned their old colors and took out their old uniforms just a little so they'd fit. I remember them dancing. They'd shake, freeze, shake again. And when the crowd yelled, do it, do it, do it, do it, a black woman two rows in front of me in her tightest jeans stood and shook as though she was not somebody's mama and the past 20 years had barely been a week. 
I remember walking down to the tailgate party without you. I could not bring you, but I have no problem telling you what I saw. The entire diaspora around me. Hustlers, lawyers, cappers, busters, doctors, barbers, deltas, drunkards, geeks, and nerds. The DJ hollered into the mic. The young folks pushed toward him. A young man pulled out a bottle of cognac and twisted the cap. A girl with him smiled, tilted her head back, imbibed, laughed, and I felt myself disappearing into all of their bodies. The birthmark of damnation faded, and I could feel the weight of my arms and hear the heave in my breath, and I was not talking then, because there was no point. That was a moment, a joyous moment beyond the dream, a moment imbued by a power more gorgeous than any voting rights bill. This power, this black power, originates in a view of the American galaxy taken from a dark and essential planet. Black power is the dungeon-side view of Monticello, which is to say the view taken in struggle. And black power births a kind of understanding that illuminates all the galaxies in their truest colors. Even the dreamers, lost in their great reverie, feel it, for it is Billy they reach for in sadness, and mob deep is what they holler in boldness, and Isley they hum in love, and Dre they yell in revelry, and Aretha is the last sound they hear before dying. We have made something down here. We have taken the one-drop rules of dreamers and flipped them. They made us into a race. We made ourselves into a people. Here at the Mecca, under pain of selection, we have made a home. As do black people on summer blocks marked with needles, vials, and hopscotch squares. As do black people dancing it out at rent parties. As do black people at their family reunions where we are regarded like the survivors of catastrophe. As do black people toasting their cognac and German beers, passing their blunts and debating MCs. As do all of us who have voyaged through death to life upon these shores. That was the love power that drew Prince Jones. The power is not divinity, but a deep knowledge of how fragile everything, even the dream, especially the dream, really is. Sitting in that car, I thought of Dr. Jones's predictions of national doom. I had heard such predictions all my life from Malcolm and all his posthumous followers who hollered that the dreamers must reap what they sow. I saw the same prediction in the words of Marcus Garvey, who promised to return in a whirlwind of vengeful ancestors, an army of Middle Passage undead. No, I left the Mecca knowing that this was all too pat, knowing that should the dreamers reap what they had sown, we would reap it right with them. Plunder has matured into habit and addiction. The people who could author the mechanized death of our ghettos, the mass rape of our private prisons, then engineer their own forgetting, must inevitably plunder much more. This is not a belief in prophecy, but in the seductiveness of cheap gasoline. Once the dream's parameters were caged by technology and by the limits of horsepower and wind, but the dreamers have improved themselves, and the damming of seas for voltage, the extraction of coal, the transmuting of oil into food, have enabled an expansion and plunder with no known precedent. And this revolution has freed the dreamers to plunder not just the bodies of humans, but the body of the earth itself. The earth is not our creation. It has no respect for us. It has no use for us. And its vengeance is not the fire in the cities, but the fire in the sky.
Something more fierce than Marcus Garvey is riding on the whirlwind. Something more awful than all our African ancestors is rising with the seas. The two phenomena are known to each other. It was the cotton that passed through our chained hands that inaugurated this age. It is the flight from us that sent them sprawling into the subdivided woods. And the method of transport through these new subdivisions across the sprawl is the automobile, the noose around the neck of the earth, and ultimately the dreamers themselves. I drove away from the house of Mabel Jones thinking of all of this. I drove away as always thinking of you. I do not believe that we can stop them, Samari, because they must ultimately stop themselves. And still I urge you to struggle. Struggle for the memory of your ancestors. Struggle for wisdom. Struggle for the warmth of the Mecca. Struggle for your grandmother and grandfather, for your name. But do not struggle for the dreamers. Hope for them. Pray for them if you are so moved. But do not pin your struggle on their conversion. The dreamers will have to learn to struggle themselves, to understand that the field for their dream, the stage where they have painted themselves white, is the deathbed of us all. The dream is the same habit that endangers this planet, the same habit that sees our bodies stowed away in prisons and ghettos. I saw these ghettos driving back from Dr. Jones's home. They were the same ghettos I had seen in Chicago all those years ago, the same ghettos where my mother was raised, where my father was raised. Through the windshield, I saw the mark of these ghettos, the abundance of beauty shops, churches, liquor stores, and crumbling housing, and I felt the old fear. Through the windshield, I saw the rain coming down in sheets. This is ta Coates. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Between the World and Me. Right on. We are all done. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. Uh, for folks who would like to chime in, feel free. Uh, concluding thoughts uh, as we wrap this book up. Uh, the number again is 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. With that, we'll hit all the folks who dialed in with a hand up. Feel free to chime in. Your line should be open. Uh, Mr. Demery Four, Thomas in New York, Roz and uh, Karma. All four of you should be with us. Uh, the rest of the folks just press star six and we'll get you as well. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, interesting book. I'm glad it's over. <laughs> um, let me just say I have made an assumption here. Um, the dream is white supremacy. The dream is all the white supremacists slash white people. Um, I concluded that all white people. I live in the dream, and they're all dreamers. And um, the mark of the beast is black skin. And if that doesn't feed white victimization, you know, they're surrounded by these black beasts, you know, um, you know, like they're the victims and not the superior ones. You know, they live for that. And then he made them victims of earth changes. Then he tells his son essentially to pray for these white people 
pretty much like they don't know what they're doing. You know, pray for them. And one day they're going to have their day because the earth is changing. And that's the bunch of worst thing you can ever tell your kid if you ask me. You should be teaching them that they know exactly what they're doing. They're doing it deliberately and they're doing it every day. And they enjoy doing it. So, you know, we need to counter it. Um, he's writing this book for his 16-year-old son at the beginning of the second passage. I got the impression, like, he's saying, listen, I've changed my views. I've changed my way for this lifestyle, but I just want you to know this is what I was. This is how I was. I used to not always feel that way. And um, that, that's what I got from that. Uh, he did more articulating of, gave more articulation of his um, childhood, and it was more punishment more um, depressed black people living, suffering. Um, Dr. Jones, unfortunately, it took her to lose her son to get a reality check. And um, unfortunately, that happens to a lot of us. Um, he seems to think that he could save um, Mr. Jones. And I just don't know how that could have happened under the system of white supremacy. Obviously, you know, it is what it is, you know. Um he kind of kept, he made a reference to a tribe of black, and he made it seem like that's something we choose. And um, black people only black people because white people decided that's what we are. And um, it's not something like a choice of ours. You know, this is what they've done, you know, and they've classified us in this way, and that's how they treat us. Um, it's not, for us to accept it like that, you know, I just don't agree with it. Um, I'm really sick of blacks talking about France. Like, it's the, the the not racist in France, you know. Um, blacks go to France. I think that the French people, the European whites, when black Americans go there, they they validate us. Um, get, we get a little bit more white validation than we get here. You know, when blacks go to France and they start sniffing, smoking, and shooting up that white validation, they become addicted. And it's sad. Um, here, you got to earn your white validation. You got to do something to another black person to get it. Um, you know, he, he, like, he went to France and came back like Malcolm from Mecca, you know, like he had this epiphany. Oh, the world isn't like that anymore. Um, white people love it when a black man teaches his son. I'll leave that part out. Um, the blinded fear of growing up in Baltimore, he doesn't want his son to live with blinded fear. And, um, I think that's the worst thing you can do. It's not logical for black people under a system of white supremacy to not constantly live in fear. I, I just don't think it's logical. So, I mean, I don't know if he thinks that by him moving to the suburbs and doing what Mrs. Jones did is going to save him because it didn't save her son. And um, he kind of left it off, you know, I got to say, if I was white and reading this, you know, all these black people do is party, they get drunk, they get high. You know, all his metaphors went right to that. And I didn't like that either. I'll be my Right on. Right on. Uh, any other folks uh, who dialed in who have uh, comments, questions, uh, feel free. Uh, the number should be yes, launched. I do. Oh, go ahead, sir. Oh, I'm sorry for interjecting. Yes, I do. I agree wholeheartedly with everything Thomas just um, spoke about. Um, my wife went to France and it was racist as all get up. Um, she had told me a story. She was probably in her mid teens at the time. And she took a trip over there, and um, one of her, one of the people on the trip with her was, was another young black female. I think she was about 16 as well. 
and she was called a monkey by uh, some lady that worked in the bathroom because they had people who would give you towels in the bathroom and stuff like that. And she told me a slew of other racist stories. So Francis, racist is all good. But to get back to the book, um, I thought it was interesting that he tried to speak again to the morality of morally bankrupt people. Um, And this is on page 146. Uh, He wrote... All of those old photographs from the 1960s, all those films, I beheld the black people prostrate before clubs and dogs, were not simply shameful, indeed were not shameful at all. They were just true. We are captured, we are captured brothers surrounded by the majoritarian bandits of America. And this happened here in our only home, and the terrible truth is that we cannot will ourselves to an escape on our own. Perhaps that was, is, the hope of the movement to awaken the dreamers, to rouse them to the facts of what they need to be white, to talk like they are white, to think that they are white, which is to think that they are beyond the design flaws that humanity has done to the world. White people don't care about what they do to the world. They want to destroy the world, and that that little uh, lily, lily white fantasy that he's speaking about is the kind of stuff that will draw white people to this, like, beast to honey. The other thing, um, I'm a writer myself. And I'm just glad that I make it plain. Him using the term dreamer in place of the term racism or white supremacy is the most sanitizing uh, phrase that one can use to describe the most brutal religion on the planet. Um, and him as an atheist, his God is the white man too, just like <laughs> just like the rest of the rest of us. <clears throat> He's beholden to their will. And I just believe that that sanitization of racism and white supremacy, his descriptiveness, of black misery, like um, Thomas alluded to, his, his eloquent descriptiveness of black people's ability to party, drink, get high, all the things that white people have stereotyped about, about us um, is exactly what they're, they're, they're milking. It's just they're feeding off of this like sharks in the feeding frenzy. And I totally understand why they would be so enamored of this book. It's really pushed me to want to read this first book to see how he wrote um, then based on his, uh, in the difference in comparison to how this is written, because this was definitely not written for a 15 or 16-year-old child. Um, it was written for white people, and I believe to draw their attention just like it has, to get him the accolades that it has, and to bring someone as prominent as uh, President Obama to his, to his uh, side as well to speak about the eloquence of his book. And I'm wondering if he read James from My Father and maybe that's where the concept of the term dream for white supremacy came from. I don't know. But it's just very interesting that he would use that particular word because it's so sanitizing. And that just, to me, would just bring white people and go so on and read this book and, and give it the accolades it's received. Uh, other folks that dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Feel free to chime in. I just want to add. You're a little yeah. low, Mr. Demery. Okay. Say that again. Is that better? Yes, sir. Okay. I'd just like to add that uh, Dr. Jones, when they uh, notified her, you know, that her son you know, that she should come to the hospital. So she went to the hospital and then to go there and her son's body was not there. You know, officially you would go someplace to identify the 
the next of kin would identify the body. I think that that was an act of racism right there because the lady was already distraught. And then she goes to the hospital, the body's not there. And then a bunch of officials meet her and then tell her what happened. And then she probably didn't get the entire story for months, you know, after that. I mean, it was, you know, just to look at her side of it, it, it was, you know, an horrific experience. And, you know, way he was doing an interview, it said that she wouldn't admit to experiencing, you know, any acts of racism while she was becoming a radiologist, which it's obvious that she probably did. But then at this point now, she had to admit that, you know, there were forces, you know, that were working, you know, against what she would consider justice in this case. I mute my line. Other folks, uh, appreciate that, Mr. Demery. For other folks, if we have not heard from you, uh, please do not wait till the last minute. If you have your hand up, you should be with us. Hmm. There are other folks who had hands up, but they're not commenting. I don't know if that they're in a noisy area. Uh, now again, don't wait till the last minute because I'm not hanging out extra if folks are not chatting now that we got time. Some of the observations that uh, I had just compounding uh, in the last section of the book, I, I can only say, unfortunately, that uh, the more that we read, and particularly I would say the last uh, segment of the book, the second audio segment, uh, really kind of affirmed a lot of my uh, thoughts about the book. Uh, Mr. Coates is a victim of racism, as I've said before. I think he has uh, done produced uh, constructive work that I use. Uh, I have quoted some of the things that he's written uh, in my writing. And even, you know, if I didn't agree with anything he had ever done, so what? He is a victim of white supremacy and VGQ. Uh, he certainly is qualified to have his own analysis perspective uh, on racism, white supremacy, even if white people find that appealing. Who cares? He's still a victim of white supremacy and VGQ. That's it. Um, as I move through some of the things that stood out, the continued use of the dreamer metaphor analogy, it just further substantiates why uh, I strongly encourage people to be very mindful of the type of metaphors and analogies that people use anyone white or non-white when they talk about racism, white supremacy, uh, because frequently those metaphors and analogies, they are not accurate uh, and they do not serve to provide truth about racism, white supremacy. It's been my experience that most often they are obfuscating and moving further away from generating clarity about what we mean when we say white supremacy, racism. Uh, so just would be another uh, illustration. Uh, in my opinion, racism, white supremacy is war. I think he has so many deliberate examples going back hundreds of years, all the way to uh, the Civil War, uh, that you know, if we're talking about plundering black bodies, that's not something that white people are asleep while they're doing it, which to me, if a dream suggests that you are not awake, you're not conscious, you're not aware, 
uh, you might not even be paying attention to what's happening. And I mean, that is just not the case at all. It's such a cliche uh, and inaccurate way of talking about white supremacy, racism. I think uh, white people, racist directly and or indirectly encourage and promote us to discuss racism, white supremacy in this manner, uh, even in that segment uh, at the Schomburg Center with Hannah Nicole Jones, a black journalist, uh, they, they have an exchange where they go back and forth about this. And how can you be ignorant? There's so many books. And even while he's doing it, he's rattling off all of these books that white people have written <laughs> detailing uh, their immense expertise on the system of white supremacy and how they have deliberately gone about abusing and terrorizing black people. And it's been my experience that white people are not writing these books for Negroes. They're writing these books for other white people. That has, that's just been my experience, but maybe I'm, I'm in error. I don't think so. The conflation was there again. I think uh, Thomas in New York brought that up again, where he had to make sure that he included that he had white friends and he wanted his son to grow up in an environment with gay bars. And that's unremarkable. Um, even the, the passage where he says white people believing themselves to be white. Uh, and later he even really emphasizes that metaphor and uh, painting themselves white, I think is the way that he phrases it. He kicks off chapter three with a quote from James Baldwin, uh, where he's, uh, Baldwin says, and I have brought humanity to the edge of oblivion because, and have brought humanity to the edge of oblivion because they think they are white. That again, that is not what this is. <laughs> it would be most accurate because they are dedicated to terrorizing individuals whom they say are not white, particularly black people. That's really getting to the core of what this is. This is not, I think I'm a white person. I mean, you really got to get to, as I always say, what does it mean to be white? I think the listener brought up before, we're not talking about uh, the color per se. It's loosely, but I mean, really, this is about terrorizing individuals that we say are not white, especially black people. It really bothered me uh, when he's talking to Prince Jones' mother. I think I had said before that I kind of classify a lot of different projects as necrophilia where they go and uh, they will find a black person that died or sometimes a whole lot of black people that died and uh, talk to their family members. So you can show them grieving and go to the funeral and watch all of that. And how did you find out the person died? It just really bothered me. Um, all of these gory details as though we have not seen that enough as though somehow white people reading. And again, I'm operating that, uh, this the audience, the intended audience is white people, that this book was intended for white people to read, um, to have them consume this uh, more black death. Yes. Tell us how painful it was. Yes. Did his grandmother recuperate? How did she take this death? I just it really, really sickened me um, just to have this woman's suffering, this family's suffering for white consumption. There's tons of illustrations of that more coming. They just had the documentary. He was talking about Jordan Davis in the section of the book we covered this week. Uh, and they just had that documentary released on HBO this week. We got tons uh, of that. None of that. None of that. If just talking about the suffering of black people, that's Solomon Northrup. They referenced the, the film, but I mean the book we've been doing that for centuries. That is not what is happening here. There is no uh, level of convincing whites, racists of our humanity. They're not interested in learning about our humanity and these people are suffering and maybe we shouldn't do that. They don't care. They are dedicated, 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 not unaware, not dreaming to terrorizing and abusing black people forever. 
uh, the whole part where he went to France, like, I probably just had to stop talking <laughs> because I just, I don't really have anything good to say. I really didn't enjoy the last section of the book. I'm glad that this book was not longer because it would be painful for me to listen to more of it. The whole going to France thing. These are just French racists uh, that we're hanging out with now. He even includes, acknowledges uh, some of that with their global history of, of colonization. I thought it was kind of wild reading it now with everything uh, that's going on in France. Uh, but just to, to move to a different uh, part of the globe and it's a long legacy of that with black authors black journalists I think he is aware of that Mr. Coates uh, going to France or going to other spots on the globe uh, in the hope of getting some sort of sanctuary uh, from racism white supremacy if you can be around whites where you are not their niggers maybe you can get slightly better treatment maybe um, but just I, I could totally see how that would appeal uh, to a white audience and then taking all the time to show off the French and, and what have you. I just I did not appreciate it. And as I said, it substantiated many of my thoughts about this book. I cannot imagine a 15 year old black child, uh, you know, being able to grasp what's being talked about here and engage like, wow, this is awesome. This is, you know, really something that I want to read. I just that is just not believable at all. Um yeah, I, I will stop there because I don't have anything else constructive to say about the uh, the second portion of what we heard. I, I could answer Mr. Demery's question, but other folks can can get in on that in terms of the uh, I, I'm forgetting the exact uh, exact phrase, but it was the birthmark of damnation. I think was how he phrased it when he was at the tailgate party at at Howard. If folks want to get his question from the first segment, now that we got it, other folks uh, that had a hand up, did you want to comment uh, before we get to the end? If we haven't heard from you, you should definitely speak up. Can I be heard? I heard two people. Karma and I think Firefighter in Florida. Go ahead, Firefighter. <laughs> yes, I, I uh, kind of like wanted to speak earlier, but uh, I think you muted me by mistake uh, the first time. Uh, it, anytime I hear the word dreamer or dreaming, uh I think uh, you already uh, have alluded to it, and, and uh, I was thinking along the same lines, is that uh, you, you're asleep, you, you're unaware, and that is not even remotely reminds me of white people at all, not especially any that I've met over my uh, 58 years, uh, that they are asleep, unaware, uh, as though they have stumbled upon uh, this uh, behavior that they have uh, over the past of uh, 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 many centuries, uh, no way. Uh, he's he's entitled as a victim of of racism, white supremacy, to have his uh, understandings. Uh, but uh, uh, that's not the first time that I've heard uh, that word used. And most times it's not accurate when describing behavior uh, of dreaming, especially with white people. Uh, the whole idea about uh, uh, France, Paris being some sort of uh, 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 place where uh, somehow uh, racism is not allowed or, or it is... Uh, lesson to the part whereas uh, a non-white person can relax is just 
borderline insanity, actually, uh, as far as the thought pattern is concerned. Uh, if 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 anything, I can see a uh, one of the many white people who have stolen, uh, called adopted uh, black children, and if they happen to be black males, they they would uh, get this book uh, to in turn it would uh, more than likely further confuse that non-white black child uh, on the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, because it would give a, uh, a uh, more uh, uh, watered-down uh, understanding of, of white people and their behavior and, and the system of racism, white supremacy, and not a, not a more accurate uh, understanding of it. Uh, so uh, those are basically my uh, my thoughts uh, on this uh, on this on this uh, reading, this particular reading. Thank you. My bad, caller in Florida by uh, muted. <laughs> uh, Karma, you were going to comment as well. And yeah, yes, I can definitely tell he was putting forward a very romantic image of Paris because I live in Texas and the only white people I have found that are worse than the white people that are in Texas are the ones in Paris. I mean, they're, they're just like, <laughs> but, and also he never mentioned that bathroom thing. And they barely have any concept of bathroom in their everyday lives. And any anyone from this part of the world would find that very, very, very uncomfortable, but they just do not have a concept of bathroom that, that is in any way agreeable to our, ours. And I want to say on a positive note, when he was describing the intricate investment that we make in our children, I guess not this last session, but this, but the little section right before, I mean, he just described it so beautifully and so rich and, you know, you never really think about all the things you do to invest in your children, but it's a monumental investment. And I thought he described that, I think, better than I have ever heard it described before. And um, you see the last thing, oh, yeah, when you lose a child, when she said she, she I think she said she was thank, thanking him for letting her talk about her son, that is never... You should never feel bad about that. You should let them talk on and on, even if it's five years, 10 years, 30 years, 60 years later. If they want to talk about that person who was taken from them so precipitously or e even if they expected it, you should let them talk on and on. It is such a, it's so good for them. It really is. It's good for them to remember that person and their time with that person. So that's it. Right on, right on. Uh, anybody else? Make sure we cover everyone before we conclude. Final thoughts? Anything stood out that you want to make sure you comment on before we conclude? Yeah, I think Firefighter brought up an excellent point because of all the blacks I see that will go and purchase their book for their 16-year-old kid, it would be those who probably have a white parent, one white parent, or uh, were adopted by whites. And this would definitely fit you know, what they would, as far, as far as 
radicalism black. You know, they don't want to give them certain authors. This guy would definitely be on their best, on their their, their bookshelf, I think. And I'll mute my line. Thank you for the show, Gus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do think a lot of black and this is <laughs> I have this this is racist white people's fault. Uh I do think a lot of black people um who are married to another black person, have black parents, the whole nine, uh I think a lot of them would co sign on this book and, and get this book uh for their children or other family members to read or just, you know, recommend it as something that black people should Tony Morrison recommended this book. I think it's her uh, John Han or at least her endorsement is on the, the front cover of the book. Um I think just as I said, because white people have signed off on it. And I think a lot of times um, what will happen is that things that white people endorse and give their okay on and say, Hey, this is great work. And this deals with racism. A lot of times we also will sign off on that and saying it's, it's great. And this is outstanding work uh, on racism, white supremacy. Not every time, but I I think I I contrast it with Dr. Welsing where white people do not give her an endorsement where they say she has published uh, pseudoscientific BS uh, where a lot of times she has said that black people have heard her work or, or read her book or whatever. However, they came in contact with her uh, concepts and it's been, oh, my God, this woman is crazy. <laughs> like that sort of thing. I think that would that is greatly minimized uh, when white people heap awards and prizes on you and, and are talking about how great and wonderful you are. I think a lot of times, not for all black people, but I think there are a significant number of us that that will do a lot. Where we will think also that this is accurate work talking about racism uh, and something that other black people uh, should read. Cause I, I've seen a lot of black people who also think this is phenomenal work and best thing ever really accurate on racism, white supremacy. I think there are many, many black people who are in that, in that category. And, and I'm sure not all of them directly have been influenced by white people, but that's pretty huge when you have the amount of promotion, um, the amount of reviews, mainstream New York Times, where they're constantly talking about him, interviewing him. He was on Bill Maher, the presentation at the Schomburg Center, which is online. So a lot more people got to see it. He's on uh, New York Public Radio all the time. Even when he's out of the country, they have him on to, to talk. I mean, just huge, huge uh, endorsement. He was on Bill Moyers. I could go on and on and on. He's on so many different uh, programs. Democracy Now! They had him up. Uh, for Thanksgiving Day. So his his interview that he did with them, and he's been on many times, but the, I think, most recent interview that he did with my BFF, Amy Goodman, was on the front page of Democracy Now! from the last Thursday in November until that Monday morning when they came back on live was ta Coates and his views on racism this year. And I just, I don't think that can be uh, understated, getting that type of, put in addition to the National Book Award and Genius, MacArthur Genius Grant, all the other stuff that, uh, white people have given to him in this text. Uh, with that, everyone satisfied? I just wanted to piggyback off of what you were just saying. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think for a lot of black people, it's really monkey see what monkey do when it comes to white people and anything that they gravitate towards, we will run towards it too because white people are running towards it. And then the last thing I wanted to chime in on was the quote that he used from James Baldwin. Um, really reminded me of uh, Michael Bradley, um, where basically he's saying it's either white supremacy or oblivion. We'll destroy the whole planet if we can't do what we want. And to me, it's those kinds of things that really help to bring home the fact that he understands the system a lot more than he's uh, putting out there. And that's what makes this book, to me, a disappointment in the way that it's written. Um, I just don't like the poetic rule. I think poetry, like you were saying in the last, uh, last week, 
um, you know, poetry is not something you use to discuss white supremacy at all. You have to be direct and surgical and, pre and precise um, when you're speaking about this, the most important religion that we're trying to dismantle. That's it. Thank you. Here, here. I guess my thought on that, I definitely appreciate reading something that is well-written, well-constructed, uh, someone who has skill with language. I think Mr. Coates does, but all of that cannot take all of that cannot take precedence over accuracy and clarity on white supremacy racism and that is where uh, I, at least in my view this book is greatly lacking with regards to accuracy and clarity with racism white supremacy that is that is what is needed uh, if it sounds nice and and all that other stuff but the uh, actual conceptualizing of racism white supremacy is false that kind of mars it for the whole book um and, and i did as i said last week i did read richard wright uh white man listen because i said it's very similar to this book i said that last week uh, i didn't even get to finish the book because that was another book i did not enjoy and it is very similar it's written i think for a white audience the very title of it is white man listen it's written for a, light, a white audience and i think uh, even some of the similarities with uh, I think people were saying elements of what they thought was anti-blackness in this book. I think is also element is also uh, evident in white man. Listen, uh, and I think Richard Wright also did some of the uh, traveling out of the States and some of the type of assessment, but kind of cutting white people, a lot of slack, cutting racist white supremacists, a lot of slack uh, in what they're doing. And even uh, I think, with right being a direct attempt to educate or inform white people about some things that they might not know in the hopes of getting them to stop terrorizing black people, which is just, you know, I can, I can only come back uh, starting from that premise that white people are going to stop practicing racism, white supremacy, that we can do some sort of talking with them to get them to stop. Or uh, if we just get them the correct information that they'll stop doing this, that that whole premise is in error and white people deliberately lead us in that direction because they know it's futile. Uh, I could be in error about that, but I think there's a lot of evidence uh, at this point. Anywho, uh, we should be here tomorrow. New book, new book, new book. Uh, uh, folks can email uh, Mr. Demi for. Yeah, I was just wondering, Gus, if you was going to answer my question. Was the, he talking about being black? I think so. Okay. Yeah, I definitely mark of damnation. I never heard it described like that or never known anybody to think of being black in that way. Yeah, the the tailgate scene that you mentioned where he's at uh, Howard and he goes back and he, he describes it very vividly being around all these black people, doctors, barbers, kappas, uh, deltas, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he finally says, and I felt myself disappearing into all their bodies. The birthmark of damnation faded and I could feel the weight of my arms and hear the heave in my breath. And I was not talking then because there was no point. I, I think that's my conclusion from the context there that he's talking about uh, being black. Um, the birthmark of damnation blackness is, is uh, not just a bad thing, but I mean a, a hellacious, horrendous uh, thing that's my assessment. I don't. I don't know what else it could be right there. Anybody else get a different okay. interpret? Oh, go ahead. Thank you. No, just thank. Thanks for answering that. Mm -hmm. If somebody got a different, I was going to say. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say I agree with you. 
completely. Um, I was thinking of the same passage when he was in the um, the tailgating party, and I said, definitely, he's speaking about being black. And again, white people will eat this up like chocolate. Uh, I don't know what the hard copy books look like. Uh, book looks like I have the E version uh, from mine. He has a picture of himself with his son, who is uh, considerably older at this point. He looks like he's hmm, could be fifteen. I'm not sure, but he he definitely looks like he's probably a teenager in early adolescence in this photo. Uh, right beneath that, uh, talking about the birthmark of damnation, which is it is what it is. <laughs> that's that's the way it is on mine. I don't know if it looks like that for everybody who has the hard copy of the book. Um, with that, uh, I hope uh, if, if folks who read the book got something constructive and, and you have a different view on racism and white supremacy, well, I hope you enjoyed the last two weeks and got something constructive. Feel free if you want to email that in. We will share it moving forward. Also, email a uh, new book. Uh, listeners, uh, feel free to vote on the uh, next book. Uh, I guess we already had a vote for a foot in each world. Uh, that's uh, Leonina McLean. It's a collection of her uh, newspaper essays, which would be interesting to read here since they're uh, very short. Uh, and covering a wide range of issues, but uh, it's it's book length. Um, Leonita McLean, A Foot in Each World. I read a portion from her uh, extremely powerful essay, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites, uh, from 1984. I read a portion of that on the program last week with Pam, but we, I guess, had a vote for that. Uh, some of the other books, uh, Black Man in a White Coat, that was also published this year by uh, Damon Tweedy, M.D., uh, about his experience in racism, white supremacy in the healthcare industry. Uh, that uh, that if we read that one, that would be the third book that we read this year uh, published on racism just in 2015. So we'd be really current. But whatever. Uh, I don't really care. I'm not reading it. Whatever the next book is, I am not reading it. I am not reading it. So uh, I have uh, really no no. Uh, as they say, no, no horse in the race, uh, whatever folks think would be constructive for us to do next. Uh, feel free. My email is until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. If you have something else uh, that you uh, think we should check out uh, starting next Friday, I hopefully will be able to announce by Wednesday uh, the tally, what folks want to do. And I will let folks know so you can be prepared if it's something you can get the library or however you want to acquire it. If you want to read along, I can let you know uh, in time. Uh, if you have any other co- uh, questions, gripes, complaints, uh, untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. On Twitter at untiljustice. Thanks all for tuning in. I'm glad that we read this book. Now moving forward, anytime a white person uh, brings it up or we hear it being referenced, bam, we read the whole thing, discussed it. We should be very informed and uh, able to have uh, much better insight about uh, what people are trying to convey uh, if they reference this book uh, particularly. Uh, I think even a listener, they put on my Facebook page today, it was an article where they were talking about racism in the brewing industry, and they consistently, I think Tanahasi Coates was the only uh, work that they cited uh, as it relates to racism, white supremacy. Nobody else, though, nobody else, black or other, uh, has written a text that gives constructive, accurate information on racism, white supremacy. Just Tanahasi Coates. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be more of that to come and we'll be in a better position to uh, make sense of it all. With that, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll catch up uh, on news and observations from the past seven days, certainly. Uh, making time for the shooting in California and some of the uh, other major events that have uh, unfolded. Uh, Looking forward to hearing from folks in about 24 hours. Uh, Certainly, uh, it is the so-called holiday season. Sobriety would be better.
best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, I would strongly discourage being around intoxicated whites. You're putting yourself in danger. Uh, It can go from zero to lethal in a matter of seconds. Uh, And we have done whole programs documenting this happening over and over again. I would even encourage be uh, or be cautious about being around non-white people uh, who are intoxicated under the influence. Too many illustrations uh, of where it just causes a lot of easily avoidable problems. Uh, If you're going to be driving, even a passenger or pedestrian, definitely do not want to be under the influence uh, and buckle up. Uh, Let's do everything we can to minimize conflict, contact with enforcement officers, race soldiers. Uh, We want to be clear and lucid thinking so we can make the best possible uh, decisions uh, to protect ourselves and people that we care about uh, under the current conditions of white supremacy racism. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.